just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Who were the top prospects traded at the deadline? And what's the idea behind not trading within your division? I'll ask Chris Blessing about prospects and Todd Zola about trading and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 5th. It's show number 31 of the 2022 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interviews, first with Chris Blessing, scouting analyst at BaseballHQ.com and the host of the Baseball HQ podcast, The Eyes Have It. I'll talk with Chris about ranking the prospects moved at the trade deadline, and then I'll talk with Todd about trading within the division, what the numbers say about the humidors, assumptions about streaming starters, and future early rounder Michael Harris? We'll have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including big changes in San Diego, Washington, and Cincinnati, medium sized changes in Philly and LA. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including a new look Minnesota bullpen, a shot in the arm for Toronto, and many other trade deadline happenings. We'll also have our regular commentary from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. I'm taking the week off from extra innings, but Alex Becky is here with the frequent flyer looking at Texas outfielder Bubba Thompson. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? A lot of players moved around in a day. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's our feature expert interview with Chris Blessing, the scouting analyst at BaseballHQ.com and the co-host of Baseball HQ's prospect podcast, The Eyes Have It. Chris, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, man. I'm glad to be here. Seems like a long time since you've been here. Of course, you got going with your own podcast, so you don't really need to hang around with the likes of me. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I guess I'd never really met... uh, understood until i had my own podcast how hard it is uh especially to plan it and do all that good stuff so you know i i at least got to watch and and learn from from the best oh that's very kind of you to say uh, how long have you guys been doing it you and brent hershey it's been this is our second season it's a pretty much in-season podcast so we'll be winding down pretty soon minor league season stops about two weeks before the major league season, of course, AAA continues on until the end of the major league season. But it's not fun talking about AAA prospects. No, I suppose not at the AA's where it's all happening. And of course, first pitch Arizona, we have to mention, where you get to see a lot of the cream of the crop of prospects. Yeah, that's that's going to be an exciting time. It's, uh, what, November 3rd through 6th is right. uh, our, our conference this year. And Looking forward to it. I'm already booked with my plane ticket, and 
I need to get my hotel. I'll probably do that after uh, we get off here. Yeah, there's a link on the site. You just click on it and it takes you right there. And it preloads in the uh, the discount that you get, which is pretty substantial, actually. The, yeah, it is. The rates are uh, pretty pretty good if you're a registered guest and you want to get uh, get down there and take in the show. Are you presenting about prospects at First Pitch Arizona? I probably will. Um, Brent usually uh, puts me on the um, Q&A with Eric Longenhagen. Yeah. So I'm assuming I'm doing that. And uh I'll probably do some moderating like you you know you've done moderating for for years at this conference I'm I'm looking forward to that because my day job I end up doing a lot of moderating at uh of panels at appraisal conferences so it's it's two different things but it's the same thing actually we're both valuating something it's just yeah. I'm valuating prospects <laughs> here and houses other you know at other times I imagine uh, less fist fights breaking out at first pitch Arizona though yeah, I haven't seen one yet. Have you? No, I actually haven't. Uh, I've heard some pretty heated arguments, especially late at night after the uh, Jack Daniels has been passed around. But uh, yeah, it's a pretty mellow crew all the way around. Uh, you had on your Baseball HQ site the top 30 list of prospects who moved at the deadline. And before we talk about individual guys, what was the process by which you put that list together? Well, the last few years we've done top 20, top 25, because we just haven't had as much uh, prospects traded around the deadline. And this year looked like the same thing. Like we didn't have anybody leading up to the last two days. I mean, of course, there was a big trade here and a big trade there. But going into the first, we only had like 10 guys that were coverable. So it was good to see the fury of trades. We did, I decided, I should say it wasn't we, I decided to bring this out to 30 prospects. I looked at it as I had 29 guys, and through research, I found a 30th guy to, to uh, submit in there. But I had 30 guys that I felt were fantasy relevant. Um, and so that was why 30 was able to be reached. If, if, if you want to know number 31, it was Colin Holderman who got traded um, to the Pirates. He would have been number 31 on the list. So I found two guys uh, from my initial 29 guys that I kind of looked at. And so, so you did mention the process. Process we started out looking at our own midseason top fifty list that also came out on the site this week. Uh, so, like the first, uh, I would say, th- four prospects on our list were all in that order on our midseason top fifty list. And then from there, it went to my own personal list, which my own personal list goes out to about two hundred and fifty, three hundred prospects at any given time. And then after that, it became watching a lot of video, getting to know these prospects. You rated outfielder Robert Hassel third. He was one of the prospects who went to Washington in the Juan Soto deal, and you called him the number one traded prospects. I know other analysts at other sites put Noel V. Marte, the shortstop who went from uh, Seattle to Cincinnati, at the top of their lists. What influenced you to pick Hassel over Marte? Well, being a fantasy site, we... You know, one of, as you know, stolen bases is a premium um, in any league at this point. And while Hassel doesn't have that plus speed that we normally are looking looking at, he does have these instincts. He's on base a lot. And we really felt like uh, when we were doing the top 50 midseason list that his ranking was maybe about 10 to 15 points higher than Marte's overall ranking. Uh, it's kind of funny. Um, you know, 
this sort of prospect has kind of come out of vogue maybe with the the traditional sites because um, they're not used to guys with linear swing planes these days. We've got a lot of guys that you're projecting out to 30 home runs very easily. Um, But these guys still exist and they tend to be later in developing their power. Uh, We can, you know, a good example of this is a guy who's been down the last few years, but like a Christian Yelich guy was very much the same profile coming up. He, he might've been a little touch faster, but it was that sort of profile. I'm not saying Hassel's the next Christian Yelich who won, you know, MVP awards, but like I'm, I am saying it like this has a similar trajectory. And I guess that would be the best case scenario where maybe a lesser scenario might be somebody uh, like a Brandon Nimmo with maybe a little more power and a little more speed. So did uh Arrival time in the majors or what you think is the arrival time in the majors play any role in your rankings? I don't, and I don't necessarily throw that in there only because I really do believe that um, uh, I, I'm trying to project the guy essentially to his prime. That's where my ranking goes to. So I'm looking at Hassel's prime, prime. I'm looking at Marte's prime. I'm looking at Arroyo. Now, the further they're back, uh, you know, there, there's a prospect later on on this list who I think is the best pitching prospect, but I have him ranked 12th because he's been pitching at the um, Arizona Complex for the for the Padres this year. He got traded in the same trade, Jarlin uh, Sasana. Uh, but the thing is, is he's so far back that it's hard, especially with a pitcher. You're You're squinting your eyes trying to project that out. Now, he has the most upside, but he also has Uh, a limited floor because it could all go wrong, you know, six, six body, all that kind of stuff. Um, And he's, you know, four levels behind the major leagues right now. So, you know, or five really. So it's harder to project when they're further away uh, for certainty. So yes, it does affect the rankings, but not as much as people think. For listeners who aren't familiar, what is the complex league? So yeah, the complex league is uh, for years we called it the rookie league, um, uh, and then the minor league um, contracted a few years ago. A couple of years ago, actually, it was last year, and they got rid of all the short season leagues, like the New York Penn League, the Appalachian League, the Northwest turned into a full season league, but the Pioneer League went away uh, for affiliated ball and. So what ended up happening was they created this, um, uh, you know, what used to be the GCL or the FSL or or the ASL um, is now known as the Arizona Complex League and the Florida Complex League. So essentially these games take place at their spring training complexes. Okay. So in, in a lot of cases, like for instance, if you're a, Cleveland Guardian player, uh, your stadium's across the street from where you're living. All the all the fields, there's litany of fields. Um, everything's compacted, and you're essentially under club eyes the whole time. You don't necessarily have your privacy outside of. So it's where they build teams. It's where you know those guys that first come over from Latin America, where they get to learn English. They have classrooms set up, and a lot of teams have this sort of sort of thing going. But for the purposes of our thing, when we talk about complex, they're at the extended spring training for the first half, and then they're in their 
um, complex league games. Whereas before, if they were in those short season leagues that you mentioned, they're all over Hell's Half Acre in uh, across North America, which obliges the teams to spend money following them around if they want to do that. Now, as you said, they're right across the street. And so the, the long and the short of it is the teams save money by doing this and get a better overall continuing look at who they have at that very low level of the minors. These are 17, 18 year old kids. And you also have that going on in complexes in Latin America, especially the Dominican Republic, uh, where, you know, there'll be complexes spread out throughout a whole geographical area um, where you might have the nationals over here and then the Astros right over here. And they're not attached in some cases, like, for instance, uh, you know, in Florida, some of these complex teams share uh, complexes with each other. So. Those teams tend to play a lot. I mean, last year when I went down to the uh, Florida Complex League, I ran into two Orioles teams. They had literally two Orioles teams, and they were playing each other. And it was for standings. It wasn't inter-squad scrimmage. It was for standings. So you just uh, it, it's, it's a way for them to um, get everybody close by, and especially an organization like the Orioles, who have spent a lot on refurbishing their minor league uh, talent um, you know, having extra teams sometimes comes to an advantage. We mentioned uh, Noel V. Marte, the high A shortstop who went to Cincinnati from Seattle. And before we get to him in particular, it looked to me and to other people I've talked to like Cincinnati was stockpiling shortstops. They acquired four shortstops at the deadline, which would be crazy if you saw something like that in a fantasy draft. But clearly Cincinnati had something on their minds. What were they thinking by acquiring one shortstop after another during the trade season? Well, I, I uh, during the um, during the non-pro season, I helped with uh, scouting prep prospects. And one of the things that you tend to realize when you're doing that is a lot of the best players start out as shortstops or start out as center fielders, and they move off of those positions. Uh, so you're trying usually, and even when you're playing in youth, Patrick, um, the best player tended to be the shortstop. Uh, he was the guy that had the most coordination when you were 10 years old. He was the guy that was hitting the ball the furthest. Uh, and really and truly, I'll be honest, that seems to be the point here, because I'll tell you, uh, in Marte's case, um, in another prospect that they acquired, Spencer Sears' case, I don't know if they're long for the shortstop position, if that makes sense. Uh, Marte looks like uh, uh, most likely a potential to go to third base. Uh, coming out of uh, the Dominican, or I, I shouldn't say Dominican, I forget where he's from. Um, coming out of Latin America, uh, Marte was comped a lot to Adrian Beltre. Uh, so, like, you know, this is a talent that was being comped to a guy that came up through the minor leagues as a shortstop, was turned over to third base. And, you know, we know how Beltre's uh, career turned out, but like, uh, you know, the cream of the crop tend to be shortstops. And Marte, uh, who we ranked in the 20s in our uh, midseason list, it was one of those players that, yes, he's moving off the position to third base, but he has these attributes. He's athletic um, and a and, uh, lot of power in his profile, uh, has a, a good sense of what he's doing at the plate, uh, does take pitches, does work counts. Uh, so you see those things. And like in my little write-up, I don't really think that 
you know, he has 13 steals so far this year. That's not going to continue. As he's bulked up, he's lost some of his speed. He started out as a plus runner. Now he's like just at average. He'll probably be fringe average pretty soon and, you know, maybe even less than that. And, and we saw that with Beltre. And you mentioned uh, this, this guy, possibly a 30 to 40 home run bat, you said in the article, and a solid on base yeah. percentage. He's a middle of the order type hitter and maybe not a shortstop, but who cares at that point? You've definitely got something special. Another Mariners shortstop prospect that went to Cincinnati was in low A, Edwin Arroyo, and you briefly mentioned him earlier. He was third on the list and he looks like he could stick at the shortstop position. Yeah, so like um, he was drafted in the second round um, in 2021, had a kind of a really down pro debut. And, and we see that a lot with young guys, teenage guys like himself. Um, he was picked as a 17-year-old. So in the draft, 17, you don't, you don't pick many 17-year-olds. You mostly pick 18, 19-year-olds in some cases. Uh, like a prospect like Brett Beatty was, uh, with the Mets was a high school guy that got uh, picked as a 19-year-old. Uh, Arroyo has improved tremendously. And now there's uh, some discount here. It's the California League. California League has always been kind of a hitter's paradise. I think he was at Modesto for, for um, Seattle before this trade. Uh, but the, the slash line is impressive. 316, 385, 514 with 23 home runs. And he also saw in 23 bases. And, and it, in the lower minors, some of those, uh, stolen base totals are a little exaggerated because of some of the experimental step-off rules that they're using there. It's made uh, projection a lot harder uh, on the speed categories. But again, this guy has a power-driven hit tool. Uh, he really does work the pull side gap. Uh, I watched about uh, probably about 25 at-bats uh, of, of his um, switch hitter from both sides and really uh, appreciate it. Uh, the him getting to the contact point almost all every time, uh, getting getting out in front of the plate, not getting beat. Um, you know, there was some spin issues and stuff that's not in the report, but like at that level, at that age, 18 years old, you're going to run into spin issues with most guys. Another prospect on your list, uh, following in the order, outfielder James Wood was shipped from San Diego to Washington along with those others. You say in your analysis, he really has shot up the prospect charts. How come? All, um, I, I had seen him last year when he was with IMG Academy before he got drafted. Um, uh, for those listeners who know the draft, uh, he was the fourth hitter behind a third hitter named Elijah um, Green, who got drafted fifth overall this year by the, nation, by the Nationals. So he's going to play with his uh, former uh, high school teammate at some point in the Nationals organization. Um, Wood last year when I saw him uh, was – I'm just going to say it straight out, did not look good whatsoever. Um, it was hitting in parts, uh, didn't seem to be confident, seemed to be worn down maybe by the attention of all these scouts. Um, the Padre scouting department kind of works a little differently than, than some of the other ones. Um, I don't know if they have a model per se. They probably do. But they rely mostly um, on upside and what their scouts are saying. It's it, I know some scouts have told me that they, you know, for a few moments wish they were in the Padres organization because it's kind of an old school amateur scouting type thing. So this guy was loaded up with tools, listed 6'7", 240. It was a question if those tools were enough to pit. 
Um, watching him this year in uh, uh, video, uh, he was a guy that is um, working with a shorter uh, swing than he had when I saw it. Of course, it's fluid now. He's cut down his whiff rate, which is pretty amazing given his size. He's six foot seven. And, you know, just like, uh, you know, just like a guy like Aaron Judge when he was coming up, we were scared that Judge might strike out too much um, because there's holes in a swing of a guy that's six foot seven because you've got those long arms and those long legs. Uh, but it seems like James Wood's kind of on a trajectory that's similar to Judge, although he's a left handed batter. There's just a lot of power here. I mean, he in low A right now, or you know, low A, he even slugged 601 before, you know, kind of getting bumped up to high A. So, like, it's a, um, it's an impressive tool set and hopefully it continues to develop. We're always interested in catchers, of course. And you said in the article, Logan O'Hoppy, we talked about him briefly, Ray and I, when we were talking about the trades in a larger sense. He went to uh, the Angels in the Brandon Marsh deal, and he's been building up a pretty nice offensive resume since he signed out of high school as a 2018 pick, 23rd round. What's his outlook? He seems to have come a long way. So he's always been kind of a solid backup upside type guy. And uh, you know, looking, I, I got a hold of one of his amateur scouting um, scouting reports from a contact just to be curious to see um, where he has come from. And we did that. I did that while uh, Brent on Eyes Have It saw him and had done a profile on him a few weeks ago. I can't think of what episode it is offhand, but um, uh, he was a guy that you know there was always that potential maybe to get to some power. I don't think people, I don't think scouts really thought that he would end up being a guy that was known as much for his contact and for his um, on-base skill um, than somebody who might hit the occasional home run and be a solid uh, backstop type deal. So like looking at him and watching video this week of him uh, specifically, because he was on the cusp of being a top 50 prospect for me. Uh, was that he reminded me a lot of Tyler Stevenson when Tyler Stevenson was coming up. Uh, lots of contact with the ability to work counts. Um, and I think that uh, Stevenson's a more powerful guy, but it looks like a hot swing plane got to loft quicker, if that makes sense. Uh, Stevenson still, when he was in double A, was not hitting the ball out of the ballpark. A lot of top spin and that kind of thing. Um, and in O'Hop has Still, there's plenty of top spin there, but like he is starting, especially to the pull side and the angles that he's hitting the ball to the pull side. He's getting that loft that's helping carry things that uh, balls that used to be doubles into home runs. So, like him, I like him a lot. And uh, we're in the age of uh, all these young catchers, so it's it's always hard to rank these guys because you've got that intuition from years of covering catchers with no offensive skills or with big holes in their game and ranking them high and coming up that they end up not living up to those rankings. So it's been a challenge for rankers like myself to, to really put these guys at a high pedestal like we've had. The top pitcher on your list is left-hander Ken Waldachuk. He went from the Yankees to Oakland in the Frankie Montas deal. What's the calling card for Ken Waldachuk? Uh, so Waldachuk is a lefty that I um, got to know a little last year watching video 
preparing for the Yankees uh, off-season list and for our minor league baseball analyst uh, book. Uh, what's really unique about him is his delivery, is a three-quarter slot delivery with lots of moving parts. And what has really taken his prospect stat, uh, status up is that because of all these moving parts in his delivery, previously he was not always uh, getting to his slot on time and delivering the ball on time, not staying uh, perfect symmetry with his upper and lower half. And this year he's improved that tremendously. Um, I had him 92-96 in a recent um, scouted video appearance, uh, riding action up on his fastball, the, the, the tail of the tape in the major leagues, tail of the tape in the minors right now. Um, the extensions really plays the play uh, pitch up, so it really seems like the ball is on guys very quickly. Uh, has a sweeping slider with a uh, really good shape. Uh, it's best when the vertical break is late, and and uh, it really complements that sweeping action. Um, and he also throws a changeup too, and and a curveball that the curveball is more of a get over pitch. Um, Looking on my own personal list, I, I, I said in an article he was a borderline top 100 guy. He was just outside of my 100 on my personal list. Um, and what's funny is, is like I went back and forth with this ranking more than anybody. I, I would say that the first five guys are top 100 guys for me in fantasy right now. And then six and seven are right neck and neck. You next mentioned right-hander Hayden Wisniewski, whom the Yankees sent to Chicago for the Scott Efros deal. He's another guy whose pitch mix you mentioned. How much importance do you attach to pitch mix versus stuff in command of the individual pitches when you're assessing a prospect? I think pitch mix is important. I, I always want them to be able to command, uh, the, especially their fastball. If a starting pitcher is not commanding his fastball, uh, let's say a strike rate of 67%, anything below 67% puts him in a, a category for me. I really want to make sure a guy can throw strikes with his fastball. Uh, then you look at if he can throw strikes with his secondary pitches, and then you look at how he does that. Now, you might only have two pitches that are considered plus or swing and miss offerings or whiff offerings. So you also want to see that pitch mix on top of that. You want to be sure that if they don't have their premium stuff on a given night, that they're able to keep hitters off balance. So in Wesnitsky's case, he throws both a four-seam and two-seam fastball. We had a prospect at the Arizona Fall League this last year who's made his major league debut, Caleb Killian. And, um, you know, what made him unique was you know, you're throwing the pitch from the same spot, same tunnel, and it's going a different direction. And it looks the same for most of the progression until you get to that point. And so with a guy with Wesnitsky, just like Killian, they've got to use this little deception for them for themselves. So the four-seam fastball is a plus pitch. It might be his one real plus pitch. Um, but the other pitch is the two-seamer. It, it's used to get ground balls. The cutter is is used to keep guys honest off of that four-seam fastball. Um, he also throws a curveball. Curveball is a whiff inducer. It's just not as consistent, and he hasn't thrown it as much this year. So it makes me wonder if it messes up that tunneling of the other pitches. He also throws a slider, too. So, like, this is a guy that's throwing everything, change-up slider, curveball, cutter, fastball, uh, two variations of the fastball. And so, like, that's where everything is. 
guys with pitch mixes like this who are able to throw strikes, they have high floors. Now, the ceiling, that's the hard part to try to figure out. And that's where this whiff-inducing type stuff uh, comes into play. AAA this year, his strikeout rate is uh, less than nine, and, and that's a concern. So we'd like to see that come up. If it stays down and he's just a consistent guy, then he might be a, you know, for your roster, an SP4, SP5 type guy. Where in the major leagues, because, you know, there's 30 teams, he's an SP3. Uh, so, like, there's, the, there's those sort of things going on with him. The next couple of prospects on the list, two more Cincinnati shortstops. Triple uh, A yes. Spencer Steer, and uh, I think he came over f- in the Tyler Molly deal for Minnesota. And another guy at the complex, uh, Victor Acosta, come from San Diego in the Drury trade to Cincinnati. Um, what's the rundown on Spencer Steer? Well, Spear is a guy that has consistently been good throughout his career. Um, a University of Oregon pro- product. Um, uh, University of Oregon products lately have had these dynamic uh, contact skills and ability to work counts. They, they might extend strike zones and stuff. This guy this year popped up with power. And so it kind of moved his trajectory. I think some, uh, some people have him in their top 100s in fantasy. I'm a little less skeptical, or I'm a little more skeptical, I should say. Um, it's a simple approach in a short, compact uppercut swing. It generates good angles, but he doesn't necessarily hit the ball hard all the time. Um, like, you know, the, the, those max exit velocities. He's consistently hard uh, contact, and, and that's always a good thing. But really and truly, it's, a, it's an average tool shed, a, a tool shed across the board. And I believe that he's not a shortstop. I believe it's more of a utility outcome. I can see this guy really playing anywhere. I mean, it's, that's the sort of kind of uh, profile that he has. Um, but I, I do want to see him in my scouted looks. It felt like that the better fastballs, the harder fastballs were, were his kryptonite. And, of course, when he gets to the big leagues, it's seemingly every starter's throwing 95-plus. So, uh, And, of course, every reliever's throwing 97-plus these days. So that's a little concerning with him. And what about Victor Acosta? Guy that's way uh, a, a good ways away from contributing. So you know we had talked about that pitcher in in the complex league. This is a hitter from the complex league, a switch hitter. Uh, there's a lot to like here. Uh, he's a better hitter from his left side, and I really do believe that uh, if his right-handed uh, swing doesn't come about quickly. Um, I think that he just becomes a left-handed hitter. Um, he's struggled a bit this year, but it's mainly because you're mixing in that right-handed side. And that right-handed side is ugly uh, when you look at it. So uh, plus runner has a lot of maturing to do, of course. Uh, but there's that potential of 2020 at a premium position. Uh, from my contacts in the complex league that's seen him, they say he probably will handle shortstop uh, with some uh, – help with the coaching, leg work, the footwork, and that sort of thing. And rounding out the top 10 is another pitcher, Seth Johnson. I think he's in high A. He ended up in Baltimore in that three-team deal. Trey Mancini went to Houston and guys started bouncing around. Seth Johnson ends up in Baltimore. What's his profile? Well, he was right there with the two, uh, with Waldachuk and Wesneski, as um, guys that um, were similar ranked on my list. I discount the fact that he just had Tommy John surgery. 
Um, he's a late to pitching guy. He only pitched one year at Campbell University, got drafted out of there. Prior to that, he I, I don't know if it was Division two or junior college, but he had been, while he was there, converted from infield to pitching. And so he's a little, like he's 23 and only in high A. He's about to live, miss two years. Um, you know, the the rest of this season and the next season, really. So 18 months, I guess. Um, and he'll be 25 coming to double A in 2024. So like there, there's that concern there that, you know, he might not get to the upside that we all thought he would. Uh, it's very easy velocity, mid nineties, uh, very good uh, movement on his fastball. Uh, it has some tailing action. Sometimes it has some arm side run. Um, but overall, it's the riding action that really sets it apart. Um, and then uh, the changeup has very late fading action. Uh, he also has a really good good slider, too. So, um, you know, it, it's a strong profile. So those are the top 10 that you mentioned in the article. You covered an additional 20. We remember talking about your top 30 list. So out of the bottom 20 or the last 20 or whatever you want to call them, uh, which one or two really strike you as the most intriguing, even though they look like they profile as somewhat longer shots than some of the others? Mm -hmm. Susana was uh, the guy that we talked about earlier, the guy that we have ranked 12th, Jarlin uh, Susana, who went uh, also in the big Soto deal. Uh, you know, big pitcher, uh, doing the things right. We were really, uh, you know, really when I read up on and then watched Ben Brown, who was uh, traded in the David Robinson deal from Philly to Chicago Cubs. Uh, he was a guy that has really taken a step forward. And, and for the Philly fans that are listening to this podcast, we've been talking about on our podcast, how much improved the Phillies have been with their pitching development. Uh, we know that they really haven't developed pitchers lately. Uh, so like they put these guys in a position where they were able to trade them. This is a six, six guy who was the later draft pick who uh, now is throwing pretty sick stuff fast two, four seam, uh, two seam fastball, and um, also a very hard slider with some vertical uh, drop. Um, and I, the last guy I'll give is, Number 26 on our list, uh, Weiler Abreu, who's been double A with the, um, uh, was with the Astros, but now he's going to be in the Red Sox organization. Christian Vasquez deal, left-handed slugger with uh, a power carry. We always talk on the Eyes Have It podcast. Uh, when we're looking at corner outfielders, they better hit home runs. That's what we do. And, uh, you know, after I wrote this, I went and got into some data and you know, maybe needed to rank him higher, Patrick. Um, uh, this guy hits the ball hard consistently, uh, but there's still that, that issue. He's only hitting 249, and there is some swing and miss here. And, you know, he's going to have to shorten up a bit to get to that, uh, get to a starting outcome. But it's possible. A lot of these guys. Uh, later in this uh, ranking are more platoon types or back-end starter types or something like that. So, What's coming up on the Eyes Have It, the Baseball HQ Prospects podcast that you co-host with Brent Hershey? I think Brent got a good look this week, hopefully, at a, at a pitching prospect. Uh, uh, he's, uh, he's up in the Northeast. I'm here in the Southeast. I'm supposed to go see Nick York and a few other Red Sox prospects. Uh, Nick York's had a difficult season. 
He was a top 50 guy previously. He's no longer a top 50 guy. Um, on my personal list, he's just barely under the top 100 right now, and it's been sinking. So I like to get a look at him uh, other than just video and um, hopefully uh, get to some uh, good double-A prospects. I, I live in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is um, um, where the double-A Reds affiliate is. And as you've talked on this podcast, we've got a lot of prospects going to the Reds organization. So I think I might be busy over the next month and a half. Well, Chris, very interesting article. I recommend it to everybody that uh, is interested in these kinds of things. And uh, I'm really grateful that you could take time out of your day to help us out and talk about some of them. And I'll talk to you again uh, soon, if not uh, super soon, and at least at first pitch. Yep, Patrick. Looking forward to first pitch and uh, can't wait to see you, man. Chris Blessing is a scouting analyst at BaseballHQ.com and co-hosts the Baseball HQ Prospect podcast, The Eyes Have It drops every Tuesday. Coming up, we have our Market Watch player news reports. Nick with the National League News. Ray has the American League News next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about an item of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Relievers Buyer's Guide column, bullpens analyst Doug Dennis will come out with his analysis of all the bullpen changes that resulted from the trading deadline frenzy. Doug will also be our guest expert on next week's Baseball HQ Radio podcast. The Relievers Buyer's Guide column is just one of the great resources available all the time when you're a member of the team at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report. And leading off, it's our National League News and our old friend, Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups Analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Big, big week at the trade deadline. Lots to talk about. The biggest deal, of course, San Diego acquiring right fielder Juan Soto and first baseman Josh Bell and giving up uh, C.J. Abrams, Luke Voigt, Mackenzie Gore, some other minor league prospects. And San Diego also got Brandon Drury from the Reds for an unprojected minor league prospect. Jock Thompson covering all of this for playing time today. So let's start in San Diego. Where do they fit all these players into a really stacked lineup? Soto immediately takes over in right field. Bell takes over first base from the departed Eric Hosmer, who has moved the Red Sox along with minor leaguers in a salary dump trade. Neither player moves as much playing time, though both could be rested on a suddenly loaded team if it locks up a playoff berth. If the Padres are chasing a spot or chasing L.A. for the division title and a possible first-round bye, it'll be all hands on deck. Yeah, I think that's pretty interesting. We immediately assume that Soto is going to play every day from now till the end, but if uh, circumstances change and they want to give him a couple of days off, he could lose a few at-bats or plate appearances, and I think the same is true to a lesser extent for Bell. So be prepared for that eventuality. Of course, if you are in a position to acquire Juan Soto, go ahead and do it, because even in you know 90% at-bats, he's going to do more than almost every player in baseball will do with 100%. So we add Soto to the outfield, Bell goes into first base to replace Hosmer, and they have to find playing time for Drury, and we expect Fernando Tatis back within the next 10 days to two weeks. So then we take away... Hosmer, Abrams, and Voigt, it still seems like San Diego has more hitters than they have slots. So who's going to lose the playing time? 
Uh, right fielder Nomar Mazzara and outfield first base Will Myers will battle for the bats off the bench and maybe some DH time against right-handed pitching. Drury's primary position in Cincinnati was third base, but that won't be the case in San Diego, where Manny Machado was a fixture. Drury can and will likely play some second base and corner outfield with San Diego, but now seems likely to be the most of the time DH in place of the departed Luke Voigt. Right-handed hitting Drury has also destroyed left-handed pitchers, 1.016 OPS, so he'll definitely be in there against southpaws. Question is, who gets the plate appearances against right-handed pitchers? Drury's performed well enough versus righties, uh, 793 OPS, that he should be in the lineup somewhere on most nights over the near term. He's been a huge 2022 offensive surprise, but we might not expect quite the same production in hitter-unfriendly San Diego versus the band box in Cincinnati. Meanwhile, what about the infield with C.J. Abrams now out of the shortstop picture? Haseon Kim is holding down the fort until Fernando Tatis returns, which could be in the next 10 days to two weeks. Kim figures to be the odd man out at that time. The infield shapes up as Bell at first, Machado at third, Tatis is short, and Jake Cronenworth, who had been a round-the-diamond utility man, now looking like most of the time second baseman. The Padres have put Tatis in center field, Nick, every so often, especially last year because they were trying to ease the strain on his throwing shoulder and uh, other parts of his increasingly creaky body for a young fellow. Any chance they resume that tactic and put Tatis back out in the uh, in the hay? Probably not right away, but if he gets more aches and pains, that certainly could happen. Also, a lot might depend on how Kim is faring, again, versus current center fielder Trent Grisham. Uh, best hitter plays, Tatis will fill the open slot. If so, Kim would appear to have the edge out hitting Grisham except in home runs. Kim is hitting 248. Grisham is posting a sub Mendoza 197. Grisham does have 11 home runs versus, I think, just two for Kim. But if they want Kim to be that sort of low-in-the-order table setter for that top of the terrific San Diego order, it could be that Kim does have the edge, which would push Tatis to the outfield. I think we'll have to wait and see on that because... Tatis has been very vocal, Nick, about wanting to go back and play shortstop. That's his position. That's what he's played most of his life. And I can see San Diego wanting to acquiesce to that request, but I can also see them saying, when you play shortstop, you get hurt. And when you get hurt, you're no help to anybody, including yourself. So sorry, but we're going to stick you out in the outfield for now. And if that's the case, I think uh, Kim might start falling onto waiver wires and might make a good speculative stash. That's certainly a possibility. I keep I keep an eye open for that and see what develops down the line as, as this uh, new lineup sorts itself out. And follow along with uh, BaseballHQ.com, the San Diego coverage from Jock Thompson, I think, and uh, he'll be on top of that for sure. And if he notices that Grisham is losing playing time, then uh, he'll probably be very quick to report that uh, Tatis is moving out there, which makes Kim more valuable. Meanwhile, Washington is on the other end of this trade. Of course, they lose Soto and Bell, and everybody thinks, well, that's the end of that. But of course, they get Mackenzie Gore. I think he's on the IL right away. They also get Luke Voigt, and they got C.J. Abrams, who wore out his welcome as a prospect in San Diego, plus three pretty good minor league prospects. We talked about that with Chris Blessing from Baseball HQ Scouting Department. But what happens in Washington, Nick, with the playing time as far as Abrams and Voigt go. Well, they also called up Joy Menensis and uh, outfielder Joshua Palacios from AAA. Uh, absence of Soto and Bell opens up playing time at first and the outfield. Expectation is that Voigt will get most of the playing time at first base. Uh, 2022 has been another good power hitting season for Voigt. 13 home runs and 298 at bats. 
with a 161 expected power index. Uh, Washington also called up, as we said, 30-year-old infielder Joy Menensis, who made his major league debut on August 2nd, hitting a homer in four at-bats. It's not clear whether his call-up would uh, last only until Voight arrived from the West Coast or whether he'll get a longer look. As for the outfield, it's not clear now how playing time will shake out. Nats called up Josh Palacios from AAA. He started on August the 2nd. We've given him a 45% playing time projection, but that's partially due to the lack of alternative outfield options. We've also given up small, given small playing time bumps to Victor Robles, Lane Thomas, Yadiel Hernandez. We know that Abrams struggled with San Diego and had been playing in AAA. How likely do you think he is to play at Washington and to produce at Washington? Abrams was only getting intermittent playing time, compiling a 218 expected batting average with just two homers and one steal at 125 at-bats at San Diego. Uh, Washington optioned him to AAA, though we expect he'll be recalled soon and get regular playing time at short for Washington. That'll push Luis Garcia to second base and Cesar Hernandez to a utility role. The whole Washington offense is a work in progress, so fantasy managers should keep a watch to see how things shake out over the next couple of weeks. And finally, we're making no changes to Gore Small in his projection until uh, if and when he comes off the I.L. Washington is not likely to rush him back at this point. No reason to do that. In Philadelphia, the Phillies were quite busy at the deadline. Uh, first, let's talk about them acquiring Noah Syndergaard from the Angels, and they moved Zach Eflin to the 60-day I.L. to create a spot. Phil Hertz covers the Phillies for playing time today. Uh, what role does Syndergaard look to have now that he's back in the National League East? The Phillies hope that uh, acquiring Syndergaard will help address the gaps in his pitching rotation. Syndergaard has a 3.83 ERA, uh, but his ex-ERA is half a run higher. BPV is a mundane 86. He's also in the midst of his least dominant season with a 19% strikeout rate, 12% uh, strikeout minus walk rate. So we've kept his projected innings at about the same. Yeah, it might be tempting for guys in National League-only leagues, fantasy managers, to look at Noah Syndergaard and think back to those glory days in New York when he's blowing people away, his blonde locks blowing in the breeze. I don't even think he has the blonde locks anymore, actually, but he certainly doesn't have the fastball. As you mentioned, uh, 19% strikeout rate is a far cry from what he was doing before. So I think Noah Syndergaard may do all right as a fantasy uh, fantasy asset playing in Philadelphia, but I wouldn't expect him to be back to those high strikeout glory days, certainly. Uh, meanwhile, what's the latest on Zach Eflin? Eflin has been out since late June, but the move to the 60-day list means he can't return until late August. We've cut his projected playing time to 4%, and further reductions could be forthcoming. One possible beneficiary of his absence may be Bailey Falter, who pitched very well in AAA, but has had less service success over 39 innings with the Phils. His skills show a more optimistic picture. Yes, they do. He looks like he could be a pretty good pitcher and a kind of under-the-radar type of guy that anybody in a National League only especially should be looking at. But if you're in a very deep mixed league, also somebody to stash. Uh, Philadelphia also got Brandon Marsh from the Angels and designated Odebel Herrera. It seems like the Philly center field situation, Nick, has been one of this season's recurring themes here on the National League Market Watch. It seems like we talk about who's playing center more than an Abbott and Costello routine, but is this finally the last chapter in the saga with Brandon Marsh joining the club? Well, Marsh is expected to get much of the Phillies playing time in center field, at least against righties. So at least for now, we're giving him a small bump up to 85% of the projected playing time. Whether that amount of playing time will stick 
will very likely depend upon his performance. His XBA is only 201, although that comes with eight homers, eight stolen bases in 292 at-bats. Much of March's playing time is coming from zeroing out Herrera. Some team might take a flyer on Herrera, but his past off-the-field baggage might keep that from happening. Yeah, and I understand the analysis that they're going to be taking a long look at Marsh, and his bat is going to determine to a large extent how much playing time he gets. But going back to the idea that they haven't found a center fielder, it seems, since uh, Vaughn Hayes, I wonder if he's just going to play a lot because he's a above average defensive center fielder, first of all, and he should be able to hit enough to out hit the other candidates for the position. Well, that certainly could be a possibility. I mean, they're looking at defense as well, uh, and they've had troubles with that. So uh, that could be one reason that he stays, stays out there for a large portion of the playing time. Having said that, if he's hitting 200, he's not that much of a fantasy help anyway, unless you're playing in a league that values defense. So we've talked a lot over the weeks about another guy playing center field in Philadelphia, Matt Veerling. What's the outlook for him? Well, Veerling had been platooning with Herrera. So we've reduced his playing time forecast as well, dropped his level to 45%, and further reductions may be coming from that as we see how much uh, how the, the outfield situation shakes out. Another area where they seem to have a bit of a revolving door in the roster in Philadelphia was in the bullpen. They cycled a, a bunch of different guys through the closer role in particular, and then they acquired right-hander David Robertson from the Cubs right at the deadline and designated Juris Familia, another reliever for assignment. What's the playing time upshot here? Well, Philly's bullpen has been a sore spot for several years, but it, really in recent months it's thrived, and now the Phillies add another high-leverage reliever with Robertson who had 14 saves for Chicago, uh, albeit with an XERA more than a run higher than his 2.23 ERA. Initial quotes from manager Rob Thompson indicate that incumbent closer Sir Anthony Dominguez will retain the bulk of saves chances for the Phillies, at least for now. So for now, we're projecting 70% saves for Dominguez, with Robertson at 20%, and early season closer Corey Knebel at 10%. The Cardinals bolstered their rotation by trade, adding left-hander Jordan Montgomery, who came over in something of a surprise deal from the Yankees. They sent outfielder Harrison Bader back to the Yankees. Zach Larson covered this story for playing time today. I have to say Jordan Montgomery seems to add some help right where the Cards needed it. Cardinals did need another quality starter to provide some stability to a rotation that's been decimated by injuries over the past few months. Montgomery has pitched well for the Yankees this season, 115 innings pitched. 3.68 XCRA, 4.2 command, and his 41% ground ball rate should do well in front of the Cardinals' elite defense. It remains to be seen which of right-handed pitcher Andre Palante, minus 1%, or right-handed pitcher Dakota Hudson, minus 2%, is pushed to the bullpen. So we'll dock both of them for now and be ready to readjust if, if necessary. And right-handed pitcher Junior Fernandez was sent to AAA Memphis to make room for, for uh, Montgomery. This is an interesting-looking rotation all of a sudden. It's not great. Uh, Adam Wainwright has been pretty great. But then you go to Miles Michaelis, and then what's interesting to me is they, they can throw two left-handers at you over three days. Uh, Jose Quintana got acquired by trade, and then they got Montgomery, as we said. And for now, he kind of looks like he slots in at the bottom of the rotation, but I don't think that's going to last. So they might have a pretty nice right, left, right, left kind of thing going as far as their rotation is concerned. And Montgomery hasn't been a world beater in New York, but he certainly was more than capable. Yeah, very definitely. Montgomery's been very solid in New York, at least. 
And uh, so it makes for a very nice rotation for the Cardinals at the moment. Meanwhile, what does St. Louis do with Bader's outfield playing time? Uh, Bader's departure will create some opportunities. Zach Larson expects Dylan Carson to become the everyday center fielder, and we bumped his playing time up by 10 percentage points. Lars Newtbar up by 20%, Corey Dickerson up 20%, Juan Yepes uh, up 10%. They should all see extra time as well. And let's not forget uh, Tyler O'Neill, who figures to be the primary left fielder against right-handed pitching, at least. They've got some options in St. Louis. And in modern baseball, Nick, it seems like that's what a lot of the good front offices are trying to do, is create options for themselves to get through the long season, the increased number of injuries, the less willingness to, to let partially injured or slightly injured players go out to the field every day and make themselves worse. Uh, I like what St. Louis is doing here. I thought Bader was a fairly stiff price to pay for uh, for Jordan Montgomery, but it's a price they had to pay, and, and they had lots of outfielders, which is another benefit of having a lot of outfielders. You can always trade one. Right, very definitely. So, yeah, it's one of those things where they've got some options that if they use them properly, uh, it could all turn out very well for them. Maybe a lesson there for fantasy managers as well, especially in keeper league formats that allow you to stash players and have you know fairly deep reserves because building up a surplus at a position is often thought of as being a waste of resources, but sometimes it's not. If you stock up on something that has value in fantasy, like Harrison Bader can steal bases, we know that. In a fantasy context, all of a sudden he's a he's an asset that is worth something, especially at this time of year. So fantasy managers take note of what the good teams are doing in the trade market. Uh, let's go to the Dodgers. This is not a trade story, but they placed third baseman Justin Turner, who's having a real off year. He goes to the IL with an abdominal strain. They called up uh, prospect third baseman Miguel Vargas to take Turner's open roster spot. Jock Thompson covering this story for playing time today. Nick, what's the latest? Uh, we've already decreased playing time for the scuffling Turner. Eight home runs, 257 batting average through 311 at-bats. And we had Vargas at 15% third base time. So no big changes at the moment in, in playing time right now. Utility Hanser Alberto was the third base starter Tuesday night versus the Giants. But this situation could be monitored. Vargas is a significant prospect, widely regarded as LA's third baseman of the future. And that future may be arriving right now. The Dodgers also acquired outfielder Joey Gallo from the Yankees in exchange for a minor league pitcher, and they traded Jake Lamb to Seattle for cash considerations. Uh, Joey Gallo, of course, thunderous taters and hurricane-like whiffs. What role does Jock Thompson see for Gallo in what looks like a really stacked Dodger offense? A free agent to be Gallo has struggled through a horrendous season. 159 batting average, 12 homers, 55% contact rate through 233 at-bats in New York. So he wasn't playing much to begin with, and we won't change that for now. Gallo's power metrics and patience remain a plus. Gallo thinks they can fix him, but they have less than a couple of months to do that. Gallo could get regular at-bats versus right-handed pitchers in left field for now, at least until Chris Taylor returns from a minor league rehab that began this week. He takes over a playing time vacated by the trade of Jake Lamb to Seattle. Bench players Trace Thompson. Rookie uh, call-up James Outman could also take small playing time cuts uh, and are in danger of losing their roster spots very shortly. More playing time changes are coming. Dodgers outfield is going to be crowded. How would you like to be a baseball player who makes his living with a bat and your last name is Outman? Yeah, right, huh? <laughs> 
Finally, Cincinnati made a news. Of course, they traded out a lot of players, but that means they're creating a lot of open slots to fill for the rest of the season. Tom Kephart covers the Reds for Baseball HQ's playing time today. First, uh, right-hander Tyler Molly got traded to Minnesota. Who gets his slot in the rotation? The trade leaves Cincinnati starting rotation of pitchers short, and it's currently unclear how they'll fill the vacancy. Could be audition time. Candidates for now to replace Molly include Triple-A right-handed pitchers Justin Dunn and Robert Duggar, who was called up, neither likely to have fantasy league appeal. Duggar will be starting tonight. We're talking on Friday, so take a look at what he does. But yeah, he's not a top-level prospect, that's for sure. We mentioned that the Reds also dealt infielder-outfielder Brandon Drury to San Diego. That appears to open up some playing time there. Who's in line for the bump? Drury's departure means increased playing time for infielders Donovan Solano and Matt Reynolds. Solano probably becomes the regular with Reynolds also playing a lot. Look for Cincinnati to play Carl Farmer at third base versus left-handed pitching uh, as he has an OPS near 1,000. But Solano has hit left-handed pitching very well too and will also play uh, Solano will be the primary third baseman versus right-handed pitching. And some mix and match going on at shortstop with uh, Farmer getting some playing time subbing for Jose Barrero. So a lot of, of mix and match kind of things going on until they see how things shake out. Solano's line drive and high contact approach has helped him to a 300 batting average and 350 OBP. Uh, not much home run power, but a 450-ish slugging makes him an asset in BA formats with increased playing time boosting his value. Nick, thanks a million for helping us out. We'll talk to you again last week. A lot fewer trades to talk about. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at Baseball HQ, and he covers the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and Baseball HQ co-general manager and writer Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Good to be here, PD. Happy August. Yeah, happy August and a very active trade deadline. I was actually on another podcast earlier this week with uh, Derek Van Riper and Ian Kahn talking about the trades, and now I get to talk about the trades again, but this time uh, breaking them down, of course, uh, talked about the trades in the National League with Nick just a moment ago, and now we'll get to the American League, and I'd like to start, if it's all right with you, with the Twins, because they were very active, but not as flamboyantly as some other teams. Let's start with their deals to bolster their bullpen. They acquired Jorge Lopez from the Orioles to start off. Uh, Ray, you wrote up this deal for playing time today. Rocco Baldelli has been quite willing to canoodle around with the save opportunities. So where does Lopez fit into Minnesota's bullpen model? Yeah, this will be interesting to watch. But my my initial take was that, as you say, Baldelli has been willing to be creative with that bullpen. But I thought that was mostly out of necessity this year. He sort of hasn't had a lot of good options. He's been, you know, trying to duct tape Pagan and Tyler Duffy and doses of young Yohan Duran. And then even last year, you know, he had Taylor Rogers, but Rogers being a lefty created some opportunities for him to be unconventional and not stick to a paint by numbers bullpen. But Lopez arriving is clearly the best non-Duran arm in this bullpen, and he's right-handed, so I, I don't see a lot of reason for Baldelli to be creative just for the sake of it. And sure enough, the the first save opportunity with a three-run lead the other night went right to Lopez. So I'm expecting Bald- Baldelli to get a little more conventional here over the balance of the season. Uh, Lopez is clearly his best reliever. He carries the proven closer tag. He lets him baby Duran a little bit, keep him out of the ninth inning, use him uh, as a fireman or for multi innings if he wants to. So I, I think that alignment makes a lot of sense. 
It makes me wish I'd uh, traded Duran when I had the chance a couple of weeks ago um, because I think he's going to lose whatever save opportunities he, he would, might have had, a figure of maybe six or seven down the stretch. Now I think one or two at the most. Uh, what about Pagan himself? He's pretty much out of the picture, is he not? Yeah, so we gave Lopez 70% of the twin saves the rest of the season, and we left Duran with a token 20%, like you say, that, you know, given the denominators we're talking about at this time of year, that's probably two or three saves. Uh, and then uh, the other newcomer, Fulmer, we threw a token 10% welcome to Minnesota saves. So as a result, yes, uh, Pagan and Tyler Duffy ended up getting zeroed out in uh, in Pagan's case, entirely justified because, <laughs> you know, he well pitched his way out of the, out of the ninth inning consideration weeks ago. And this just, you know, this just kind of formalizes that. That's right. Uh, Michael Fulmer comes over from the Tigers in one of the moves that they made uh, to kind of blow things up a little bit. The Twins also bolstered their rotation by acquiring Tyler Molly from the Reds for three minor leaguers. Uh, this looks to me like a big gain for Molly, both in real baseball terms and in fantasy baseball terms. Yeah, I agree with you in terms of upgrade of team context and ballpark context and division context. Not that the NL Central is bad, but when you're in Cincinnati, every the entire rest of the NL Central looks rough, right? Uh, so it's a good play park to pitch in. The road parks are good to pitch in. You know, he's going to get better support both from his offense and notably from his bullpen because we just covered the Twins bullpen and that is five or six arms better than anything in the tight in the, in the Reds bullpen right now. So all, all arrows point up for Molly. And if you look at that rotation now uh, it starts to stabilize. It sort of feels like this twins bullpen has been kind of built on the fly all year with, um, you know, sort of a revolving door of injuries and upgrades along the way. But now you, it sort of starts to take shape with Molly joining, uh, you know, former Cincinnati exile, uh, Sonny Gray, an old teammate of his, and and Joe Ryan as uh, sort of the top three guys in there in that rotation, and that takes some of the pressure off the back end, which is good because the back end isn't really good. Uh, Dylan Bundy and Chris Archer are in those roles right now. Uh, Bailey Ober has been out, but we expect to see him back sometime this month. So one of Bundy and Archer likely gets bumped at that point, and then they've got Devin Smelter and Josh Winder hanging around and. Either one of those might be better than Bundy or Archer, so maybe we should change at some point. Maybe we see a little six-man action, which we've seen from the Twins at various points this year. But uh, but Molly, Gray, and Ryan, I think, are pretty well etched into the top half of this rotation. In Toronto, the Blue Jays made some moves, most notably acquiring Whit Merrifield from Kansas City in a last-minute move in exchange for right-hander Max Castillo, who didn't look bad in his brief cup of coffee with Toronto earlier this month, and a minor leaguer, Samad Taylor, an infielder. Uh, Tim Cavanaugh covered this story for Playing Time today. Ray, dare we say Merrifield will give the Jays lineup a shot in the arm? Well, not until he does get himself a shot in the arm, which it now appears today. It sounds like that actually has happened. So that question has been resolved. Thanks, thanks for teeing that one up for me, PD. I, I, I always love when I get to slam down your setups like uh, that. All right, no problem. Yeah, <laughs> alley oop. Exactly. I, uh, I, I don't get a lot of air up around the rim, but I like to be forceful when I do. Um, but anyway, Blues GM, uh, Blue Jays GM Russ Atkins. Now that the vaccination issue was resolved, has said that Merrifield will get playing time around the middle infield, maybe some third base, many, maybe some outfield. Uh, the first thing they might ask him to do, I think, is maybe to spell George Springer, who's been 
nursing an elbow problem that I think we have to start calling chronic because I think this is the second, third, or fourth time that that has popped up this year. Springer was back in the lineup on Thursday as the DH, but I'll be curious to see if uh, Springer requires more DH time in the near term and Merrifield gets some uh, some center field playing time because, you know, he is a better defender than any of the guys that Jays have been running out there, especially uh, Teoscar Hernandez, who I think plays the outfield on roller skates, and Rymel Tapia, who is quite fast, but, uh, you know, uses that speed mostly to overcome bad routes that he takes to balls. So, uh, you know, neither one of those guys will be confused with uh, who's your best defensive center fielder in Jays history. Devon White, I guess. Or, sure, yeah. Uh, yeah, neither one of those guys is Devon White, uh, but uh, and Merrifield hasn't been hitting much uh, with with the with the uh, Royals this year, so we'll see if the bat gets unlocked. But uh, you know, the, there are a number of ways that he will find his way into the lineup. Uh, wh- where where do you think they go to? Uh, who do you think loses playing time to Merrifield? You're the Jays observer here. Well, from what I've seen so far, and you hear the broadcasters talking about it, and they're relaying what they heard from management, and of course, management is saying what management wants to say, which is often not anything to do with what they actually plan to do, but it looks to me, just from watching, that Tapia is the likeliest candidate to be the odd man out. First of all, as you mentioned, he's really a poor defensive outfielder, even though he has really top floor sprint speed. He does take terrible routes. He's eighth percentile in outfield jump, 13 percentile in outs above average among outfielders. So it's, it's not a good defensive profile. Although he is hitting rings around Merrifield, I think his OPS is over 800 this year. And, and, uh, and Merrifield be down around 650. And Hernandez isn't a ton better defensively either. Again, a lot of sprint speed. He actually steals bases or used to, but he can't get to the ball sometimes and he makes weird decisions and that kind of thing. But they definitely need his bat, which is 85th percentile pretty much across the board. Uh, Toronto shored up their bullpen ray by acquiring a couple of right-handers, Anthony Bass and Zach Pop. There's a name for you and a tough one for microphones. They get back in Miami minor leaguer Jordan Groshans, who used to be something of a prospect. His luster has dimmed somewhat recently, but I'd have thought they might have been looking for left-handed relief help after they DFA'd uh, Anthony Banda, who they picked up in a trade from Pittsburgh a few weeks ago. What is Toronto doing with this deal for two right-handed relievers? Yeah, they're trying to light their bullpen, right? So uh, your Groshans was, as you say, it was prospect stock had fallen a little bit, but he was ranked 56th on our HQ 100 prospect list this past offseason. So that, that, that's a real chip for the Marlins. Back on the Blue Jays side, though, Bass, you know, who's got pretty good control, only walking two guys per nine and striking out a guy per inning, uh, you know, probably, I would guess, falls into the primary setup role in front of Jordan Romano. Pop, probably more of a middle reliever, you know, first guy in after the starter kind of profile. You know, he's situationally helpful because he's got a really big ground ball rate. And there are times when you want to bring that guy out of the bullpen to get out of a jam. Right. So, uh, you know, he, he, he meets a need there. Um, his, he doesn't get the strikeouts that Bass does. Like I said, he relies on the ground balls. Um, you know, he's got good control, better control this year, but he's generally given up a lot of contact too, which, you know, if it's a ground ball right at the shortstop, that's great. But if it, uh, you know, if it eludes the infielders less good. So, if you're building a bullpen hierarchy, it probably starts with Pop, and then you know behind him you've got Yimi, Yimi Garcia, you've got Bass, you've got Romero, 
uh, that's probably how you kind of build your path from the fifth or sixth inning to the ninth, I would think, right? I think so. Something that struck me as unusual about this is that both Bass and Pop, at some point in their backgrounds, were on the Blue Jays roster. Sure. And and they're just making a return visit, I guess, as you say. I'm not 100% sure that Bass is going to shove Garcia out of that primary setup role. Garcia has been pretty much just as good as Bass by StatCast metrics, but we'll wait and see. I mean, sometimes you make a trade for a guy, you got to show everybody how smart you were by putting him in high-profile roles. Uh, Toronto also made a somewhat under-the-radar acquisition of right-handed starter Mitch White, and a prospect from the Dodgers gave up a couple of minor leaguers. What do you think we should expect from White in this situation? Yeah, this one was really weird because you don't usually see a contending team like the Dodgers just giving away guys who are helping at the major league level. White's not as an elite prospect, but he had been in and out of the rotation a couple times this year, and the Dodgers rotation obviously has suffered a good bit of attrition. They've lost Walker Bueller, and then right after they traded White, they lost Clayton Kershaw. This is not NL playing time today, so I won't get into that in too much detail, but not like the Dodgers to give away an asset that they thought they needed. I gather from doing a little bit of um, down the rabbit hole, Twitter and Google research that this was a little bit about a pending 40-man roster crunch that the Dodgers, you know, might have not been able to retain White or, you know, needed a 40-man roster spot this winter. And the Jays sent back a couple of guys who who do not need to be put on the 40-man. Uh, but for the Jays, you know, they pick up White now. And, you know, Ross Stripling, who's in the rotation now, was pretty effective as sort of a swingman, multi-inning reliever for the first half of the season. So White might be backfill for that, uh, you know, three inning relief role every uh, fourth or fifth day kind of role, or maybe even, you know, it seems like Stripling is pitching well and has earned the chance to stay in the rotation, but maybe those guys flip-flop and Stripling goes back to the uh, that multi-inning role. I don't, we'll have to see how that plays out. Not a ton of fantasy value for Mitch White in that role. I don't even think in deep single league formats, but I think that could change. Uh, you say Kikuchi has not been good. He's got to get off the schneid and pretty sharpish. He's had two starts since the break, nine total innings. He has cut down on the walks, which is what was uh, his real problem earlier in the season when he was r- really just plain bad. Uh, up in your part of the world, the Red Sox traded for cast-off San Diego first baseman Eric Hosmer, who tried to block the trade of Juan Soto coming in by not waving his no-trade clause to go to Washington. I guess Boston wasn't on his list, so they traded him to Boston basically for nothing. But I think if I read the story correctly, San Diego is basically paying his entire salary for the rest of his contract, and the Red Sox aren't on the hook financially, which is not bad for them, even though they're relatively well-financed. Chris Olson covering the story for Playing Time today. So what kind of crossover fantasy value do you think there is here for Eric Hosmer coming into the American League? Yeah, I think he'll get a look here. The Red Sox uh, sent Frenchie Cordero down to AAA Worcester to make room, and Hosmer you know, being the left-handed hitter now makes a decent platoon with Bobby Dahlbeck uh, and Hosmer would get the good side of that platoon. Neither one of those guys is hitting worth a lick, but, you know, structurally, at least, it looks like a good platoon on paper. Hosmer's projection right now for the rest of the season, uh, you know, three homers, 16 RBIs, a 250 batting average. It's, you know, it's unexciting. But I, I think the Red Sox will take a look at him. Obviously, Tristan Cassis is lurking in the wings and, you know, sometime before the end of the season or next year, Cassis is the first baseman of the future. Uh, Hosmer 
at the very least, provides a defensive upgrade here. The Red Sox first base defense, especially with Franchi Cordero over there a lot, has been absolutely awful. So Hosmer plugs that leak for the short term. The Sox get a chance to see if they uh, can get anything out of the bat. And if they don't, like you said, they're not paying them. The Padres are. The Red Sox are only on the hook for the league minimum for the rest of his contract each year. So it, it's not going to pain the Red Sox if sometime in September or during the offseason or, you know, next June, they decide to just outright, you know, outright release him and turn the position over to Cassis. That's going to happen at some point. It's really just a question of when. I think I read at Fangraphs that Eric Hosmer is like one of the worst fielding defensive first baseman in the last 20 years or something like that. And it says something about Franchi Cordero's work with the leather, right? (laughs) Still better than, still better than Franchi Cordero. So if you're Franchi Cordero, you might want to start working on that, I guess. In New York, Ray, the Yankees shipped Jordan Montgomery to St. Louis to acquire outfielder Harrison Bader. This struck me as a little bit unusual. Montgomery was pitching fairly well for the Yankees. Chris Olson covers them for playing time today. Uh, what is Bader's likely role? Well, his role right now is to stand in the dugout and get his uh, plantar fasciitis under control, you know, keep the walking boot and the crutches uh, handy because he's not helping the Yankees uh, just yet, at least. Uh, and you know, to that end, I think... You know, I, I agree with you. It was a little weird to see Montgomery shipped out, but um, the, the Yankees' interest in Bader probably extends more out to 2023 than the rest of this year. If he comes back this year, there's you know maybe he pushes Aaron Hicks or maybe he's a platoon partner for Andrew Benintendi in left field. You know, there there are some fits there, but uh, you know, Bader is a New York native and obviously very good defensively. And we've seen uh, the Yankees probably played way too much of Aaron judge in center field. So he's probably the pure center fielder that the, uh, that this franchise has lacked since, uh, you know, Brett Gardner's heyday in center field, which is not to be confused with Brett Gardner's recent work in center field, which was not, not nearly as good as it once was. So that's probably the fit for Bader, but we'll have to see how quickly he gets his uh, foot issue under control and whether he can, his way into the uh, the outfield mix with Benintendi and Hicks this year. Meanwhile, as I said, uh, the idea that they would trade Montgomery at all was a bit of a surprise to me, but n- they did it. So what are they going to do to fill his slot in that Yankee rotation? Yeah, obviously they just added Frankie Montas. So, you know, they the bullpen, the rotation depth is better than it was. And they had also just reactivated Domingo Herman, who, I guess now as a beneficiary of Montgomery leaving, he gets to hang around in the rotation. Interestingly, they did also just move Luis Severino to the 60-day IL, which now means he's not back until you know the last two weeks of the season or something like that, which I think you'd have to expect sentences him to coming back as something other than a starter in a multi-inning relief role where that's how they're going to try to use him in the playoffs, which is, as I remember, how they used him in the playoffs last year. Uh, so, you know, they're going to try to get shorter bursts out of Severino. Severino and German, and Herman, uh, you know, both set up that way for, you know, maybe as a tag team for short bursts is, is, is something we might see in late September and into uh, and into October there because that seems to line up pretty nicely. We mentioned the Yankees outfield. They found a new home for Joey Gallo to get him out of their outfield. He goes to Los Angeles. I have to say this doesn't seem hugely significant given how little he was playing. There's not a heck of a lot of opportunity in L.A. right now, although they are using sort of a revolving door of 
guys like Trace Thompson and, and uh, James Altman in the uh, outfield DH spots. But, you know, for the Yankees, Gallo had fallen out of playing time. So, uh, you know, Ben Tendi had really pushed him, you know, to the fringes of the roster. We talked before about how Matt Carpenter sort of demonstrated that at least in some circumstances he can survive as a corner outfielder. That, you know, he played left field at Fenway when they were up here. And then obviously the Yankee Stadium right field is kind of small. So, I mean, they can get away with that a little bit. So they've got enough left-handed options on this in this outfield right now that Gallo really just didn't fit anymore. It's good news for anybody. I guess it's Tim Castro who now can hang around as a uh, outfield reserve pinch runner defensive replacement type. At least until Bader gets healthy or Giancarlo Stanton comes back and puts another squeeze on in kind of a different way. I don't think Castro's the kind of guy that you need to break open your fab wallet too extensively to get, and you, I don't even know that you'd really consider it. Uh, we mentioned earlier that Minnesota had acquired closer Jorge Lopez from Baltimore. Of course, that creates a situation in Baltimore. Ryan Williams covered this for playing time today. What does the trade do in the Baltimore bullpen? Because they keep winning games. They do keep winning games. And my first reaction to this was, woohoo, it's Felix Bautista time. But manager uh, Brandon Hyde is sort of saying, whoa, not so fast. I have other options here. We're not a one man bullpen. Uh, you know, Bautista's been very, very good. Uh, you know, an ERA of a buck 66, an expected ERA that's under three. Um, you know, it already had a couple of saves and a pile of holds working in front of Jorge Lopez. But Hyde says that Bautista's really just one piece of the puzzle here with uh, Sinel Perez, who's been pretty effective from the left side uh, and is still factoring into that. And also uh, Dylan Tate, who's got a nice uh, 222 ERA and expected ERA in the low threes as well. Um, but we're still giving Batista about half the saves here in our projections. Sinel Perez about 25%, which is pretty typical for a you know, situational lefty who, when the lineup falls in the right place, might get a save op. And then the last 25% we gave to Tate. So that's where we come down right now. We'll see if Brandon Hyde really does believe he's got a, you know, the makings of a committee here, or if he's just trying to keep some of the pressure off of Felix Batista while he casually gives Batista, you know, the first five save chances or something like that. I think that sounds about right. Uh, despite all of the analytical knowledge that points to not having a, an established closer and to using high leverage situations to use your best pitchers. I think most managers still like having that closer because it's one less thing to think about during a game when they're trying to figure things out. It starts with, he pitches in the ninth if we're winning. Let me work on what goes on ahead of that. Uh, I believe that maybe Perez being the left-hander Ray could pick up a few instances where, you know, you've got two, three, four, they're all right-handed hitters and they're in the eighth in a close game. Yeah. That might be one of those kind of situations, but yeah, otherwise I'm with you. I, I was woohoo. I picked up Felix Bautista a week ago and in my TGFBI league. So I might get some saves out of that, which would be very helpful at, at this time of the year. The Mariners were busy a few days ahead of the deadline with some big trades, uh, notably Luis Castillo, but at the deadline, they made some smaller deals. And I'm curious what you think about their acquisitions of guys like Curtis Casale and Jake Lamb and Matt Boyd. I didn't even know Matt Boyd was still pitching in separate deals with the Giants and the Dodgers. Uh, Alan Davison for playing time today at Baseball HQ. Any fantasy interest in any of these guys? Not really, even if you squint. Casale is uh, down in AAA on a rehab assignment now. Uh, he'll probably get called back up soon, and I would imagine he'll end up 
uh, backing up Cal Raleigh there, who's really been hitting pr pretty well as the primary catcher over the last month or two. That would leave Luis Torrens as the odd man out. Uh, and he, I believe, is out of options. So we would have to see if he gets uh, scooped up somewhere else or if the Mariners can sneak him back down to AAA. But I would imagine we'll we'll see that shift once Casale's ready. As for Lamb, you know, that's a left-handed bench bat. He could play first and third quarter outfielders. I would imagine mostly a pinch hitter, maybe a couple of bats, uh, bats um, a couple of platoon starts or something like that. Um, and as for Boyd, yeah, it's been a long time since we've seen him. He's on the 60-day IL. Uh, I, I, would, I th think they're looking at him as maybe a left-handed bullpen, an option down the stretch. So our projections are pretty conservative for 10 or 15 innings at the, as the most we'll see. And he's probably got a couple of boxes he has to check before he even gets that far. And I bet on the IL, he must have like a lazy boy recliner and kind of a nice cozy corner because he spends so much time there that he's kind of moving in. In Tampa, the Rays continued an outfield overhaul, started last week with acquiring David Peralta from Arizona, and continued at the deadline when they picked up outfielder Jose Siri in a three-team trade. Houston seemed to have given up on Siri, and I would say that's a bad sign for this deal for Tampa because Houston's a pretty smart organization, except Tampa's a pretty smart organization too, and this is almost shapes up like a fantasy challenge trade. You know, I think I'm going to outsmart you on this Jose Siri deal, but what potential does he actually have, do you think, in Tampa, especially for the rest of this year? Yeah, it's. Um, I think we talked about it before. Tampa's had a lot of attrition in terms of uh, their outfield defense, and I think they're kind of prioritizing that here, trying to bring Siri back in. Remember, they had Margot, who's out now. Kiermaier's out for the year. Uh, I think they DFA'd Brett Phillips. I forget if that was in this deal or if it was in the David Peralta deal, but Phillips was sort of their last standing true center fielder. So now they've got Siri, and also they added Roman Quinn as a uh, free pickup. So those guys are their sort of best center field options right now. Uh, you know, Quinn, we know enough about him. He can run, but he can't hit. So he's probably there as a, you know, mostly a defensive replacement or a emergency option. All of that leaves the door open for a little while for Siri to maybe stake out a claim to center field. Um, he did hit 305 last year. Uh, it was helped by a, by a lofty hit rate. Uh, in a very small, you know, 50 at bat sample size in Houston. Uh, but, you know, there's some life in the bat. There's some, you know, speed skills here. Uh, so, you know, maybe a spec play if you're looking for uh, a couple of stolen bases in the next couple of weeks. There are, you know, th there is some possibility that he, uh, you know, if he gets on first, that he could add some value that way. We discussed the Whit Merrifield trade earlier and its effects on the Blue Jays, but of course his departure also leaves a gap in Kansas City. What are they going to do to fill Merrifield's plate appearances there? Yeah, that infield is suddenly up in flux because Merrifield's gone and so is Emmanuel Rivera, who we talked about a couple of weeks ago, who seemed like he was staking a good claim to the third base uh, role. And now you know, both second and third are opened up. Uh, so for now, it's Michael Massey who's been added and uh, Michael Garcia, who have both uh, picked up decent chunks of playing time on our depth charts. Um, Massey's already gotten one start at second, one start at third. Massey and Nicky Lopez are probably going to be covering second and third against righties. So we've kind of chunked up their playing time accordingly. Um, against lefties, it's a little less clear what's going to happen. You might see Garcia at one of those spots, maybe second 
and Hunter Dozier can always jump back into third base. So we'll have to watch a couple of games against lefty starters to see how they structure their lineup. Uh, but it's Matt, Massey and Garcia look like the ones who are going to stake out the most uh, additional playing time here. And of course, we've seen Vinny Pasquantino come up and he has showed some power with the bat and uh, Prado also managed to find his way up because of trades and the vaccine issue when they came to Canada and all of those things. I wonder if Kansas City is going to take a longer look at some of the other guys they have on the farm because there's some talent down there. And why wouldn't they over the next couple of months? I'm not sure. You know, we talk about Hunter Dozier because he's sort of flexible and you can put him in a lot of places, but I think we know what Hunter Dozier can do, and it's not that exciting, right? And you might as well look at some other options here, as here because you might get, you might find out you have something better than Hunter Dozier. And what about the incoming ex-Blue Jays? Yeah, they're both on the forty-man roster, but were sent down to Omaha. You know, Max Castillo, who I think we talked about a couple of weeks ago, I, I would imagine will stay up on the big league roster pretty soon, um, either in a long relief role or if a, an opening comes up in the rotation. The Angels sent closer Rizal Iglesias to Atlanta for reliever Jesse Chavez and AAA pitching prospect Tucker Davidson. And the big question here seems to be, Jesse Chavez is still in the major leagues? And still getting people out. His ERA is around 260, a 127 whip, uh, K-minus BB at 20%. You know, those are all more than acceptable numbers for any any reliever, let alone a 38-year-old. Yeah, I thought so too. And uh, when I first saw the name, I thought, is there another Jesse Chavez in baseball? <laughs> and then I looked it up and sure enough, it's the same Jesse Chavez who played for Toronto for a while, as a matter of fact, uh, a long time ago. But now they've lost Iglesias from that back end of the bullpen. So who's getting the save opportunities? Few though they might be in Los Angeles. Yeah, not not a lot of saves to be chased here, but uh, Jock Thompson thinks they're going to be uh, a mix and match committee, and that mostly means we can stay clear of it. But uh, Chavez is probably in that mix uh, based on the effectiveness we were talking about earlier. And then, you know, they've got a stable of uh, that guy, kind of veterans, right? Uh, Ryan Tapera, Aaron Loop from the left side, uh, Jimmy Herget. Uh, only Herget has an ERA under four. So, again, not too much to get excited about here, but I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the next save op goes to Chavez. And just for uh, now that I've started off on this theme, uh, Tapera and Aaron Loop, also former Blue Jays, they seem to be populating the entire league at this point. Uh, the Angels also traded starting pitcher Noah Syndergaard, a Toronto Blue Jays draft pick, actually, and outfielder Brandon Marsh to Philadelphia for outfielder Mickey Moniak, catching prospect Logan Ohapi. There's a name for you, and another lower level minor leaguer. What chance does former first overall pick Moniak have to catch on? Yeah, Moniak you know, was, uh, was sort of lost in the woods after being the first overall pick for a long time and then kind of got it together and you know found himself a fourth outfielder kind of bench role in Philadelphia. Probably the best case is that he stakes out the same claim here. As long as Mike Trout's out, he's probably got a shot to get some center field at bats because that's where March was working. Uh, Joe, you know, Joe Adele probably gets a lot of playing time now. Uh, he's already been getting a decent look from the angels, but now they probably commit to that, but he will never set foot in center field. So the center field stays a little bit open until Trout comes back, uh, along with, uh, along with Moniac, Magnuria Sierra is on this team and 
probably going to pop up in the outfield a little bit. Dylan Thomas as well, and then we'll see which one of the, which one of the above gets uh, bumped off the roster once Trout comes back. I would imagine not Moniac. They'll probably take a longer look at him. I wonder if it's Dylan Thomas. He'll rage, rage against the dying of the light. And all the English majors out there are going, oh, oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> the young catcher, Ohapi, seems to have been the prize for the Angels, but he's still a ways off making the big leagues, is he not? He is. Uh, they assigned him at double A. Unlikely we'll see him in Anaheim this season. But certainly, uh, a cat, you know, in terms of NL to AL crossovers at the trading deadline uh, in dynasty leagues, that's a catcher to watch to watch and maybe uh you know maybe a year from now it's uh, we're talking he's somebody we're talking about being on the cusp of a call-up and finally one story this is not trade related the rangers right-hander john gray who is having a good season is going to miss four to six weeks with i think it's a strained left oblique something in that area but enough about gray's anatomy uh, rod truesdell for playing time today who gets his innings yeah, rough news. Graves had a nice season in Texas. Uh, in terms of who steps up, Taylor Hearns taking the roster spot right now, but he's going to pitch in relief. So probably another transaction coming once that rotation spot comes around again. Uh, it could be Dallas Keuchel, who we talked about last week as a Martin Perez replacement, but then Perez didn't get traded. But now here's an opening for Keuchel. Or, uh, you know, Cole Raggins is another one who uh, is – making his way through the upper minors and might be ready for a call-up. So we'll have to see um, where, which way the Rangers go. We'll probably see Raggins before the end of the year one way or the other. Uh, he's got 113 Ks and 95 innings in the upper minors this year. So, you know, that gets kind of interesting. I'll be curious to see, get eyes on him when the opportunity comes up. So that's a name I'm going to watch, um, you know, for the call-up reports to see if, uh, if, the, if the Rangers think it's time for him. Well, Ray, thanks very much. It was a very busy week, a lot of goings on, a lot of things to think about. We actually didn't get to every single guy who got traded because some of them just on their face looked like they're not that important fantasy-wise, but I do appreciate you taking the time and we'll have a nice calm talk next Friday when the trade deadline has burbled down and we know where we stand on a lot of that stuff. Exactly. And, you know, one other thing I should plug before we go is, you know, talking about the, uh, you know, Logan O'Hoppy and some of these guys, uh, you know, Chris Blessing has a great article up on the site today that covers all the prospects who were traded in the, uh, at the trade deadline, you know, with your AL to NL list, your NL to AL list, and then just an overall, you know, sort of top to bottom ranking of prospects who changed hands. It's a great, uh, great resource if you're in a dynasty league and trying to get, uh, get your arms around some of these prospects. Maybe you knew some, maybe you didn't, and you're trying to figure out who you should care about. That's the one place you want to go look. And of course I had Chris Blessing on earlier in this show talking about some of those prospects, but nowhere near all of them because he did a very in-depth look at the, pretty much every prospect who moved. I think it was the top 30, which is, you know, arguably 10 or 15 more than you probably need to know about right now. But as you said, uh, tremendous depth in the article. It's a really readable piece as well, well-written and, and enjoyable and full of information. So make sure you check that out after you uh, get off this podcast. And Ray, thanks again. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, BD. Talk soon. Ray Murphy is a co-general manager at Baseball HQ and a columnist at the site, and he covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. 
Next up, it's our feature expert interview with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, Rotowire, and Sirius XM. He's next on Baseball HQ Radio, but right now, though, I want to remind you of another great article at BaseballHQ.com. In Playing Time Today, our Baseball HQ team analysts review the implications of all the deadline trades. One article for the National League, another for the American League. Go in-depth and don't miss the next edition of Baseball HQ Radio, another Friday full edition featuring an expert interview with Doug Dennis, the bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com, and a special interview with Woody Govan, who won a spot on Baseball HQ Radio by being a good guy and supporting the charitable effort at the Fantasy Baseball Potapalooza Potathon a weekend or two ago. I'll ask Woody about his fantasy experiences, how he manages his teams, his experience last year as a first-timer at First Pitch Arizona, and of course, how he came to be called Woody. Plus all our other usual great stuff, National and American League news analysis and our Baseball HQ commentaries, we'll be talking bullpens with Doug Dennis next Friday on another Friday full edition of Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. TD here, time now for our second feature expert interview of the show with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, Rotowire, and Sirius XM. Todd, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Yeah, I spoke to you guys over the break. We did our annual uh, roundtable. That was fun. Looking forward to the standard uh, HQ Radio interview now. It isn't really uh, a standard week. I just wondered what your <laughs> first impressions were in the aftermath of the trade deadline, which is one of the busiest ones I can remember in many years of following this game. It was kind of chaotic last season. So I don't know that we can say, well, the, it's because of the CBA and the 12 playoff, 14 playoff teams, et cetera. I think it's just the nature of the game at this point. But I think we need a couple more years with the new playoff to see how things flesh out. And from what I understand, um, this was, you know, even it was just one day, but moving the moving the deadline could have been sort of a trial balloon to see if they want to keep moving it further and further into August. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if, if that if that's the case or not. From fantasy, it made it interesting in that we had kind of two deadlines for our for a Sunday night fab for leagues that that use them. Although there wasn't a whole lot going on the first period, I think there should have been, but there wasn't. So, you know, I you know the whole do you get back the prospects that you deserve for some of these star players? Uh, I I let I, I stay in my lane. I let I let uh, you know Brent Brent and the gang at HQ take care of that, and James Anderson over at Rotowire. So I really can't judge. Did they get enough for Soto? Did they get enough for Castillo, et cetera? I let the uh, people, you know, again, stay in my lane. But it's fun. It's fun reading the names and 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 you know, seeing what's going on. But I I come from the school where I mean, San Diego's kind of showing it that if you want to spend, you everybody's got the money with TV revenue. Everybody's got the money. This whole small market stuff is, is kind of overblown. So I just uh, I you know did Washington offer? Juan Soto a deal that he's worth and he turned it down I'm okay with trading him at that point but if if the, if the deal was not offered that Boris I mean uh Soto wasn't going to accept then that's not good for the game you know I think that deals should you should be able to keep your players for their market everybody can keep their players for their market value if they're willing to pay it there are just you know 26 teams that aren't willing to pay it I hear what you're saying about the the whole idea of value, and it's kind of a shame that 
that uh, Juan Soto won't be a national for his whole career. He's going to apparently be a mercenary like a lot of other players have been. And frankly, I think a lot more players back in the day would have been mercenaries had they had the opportunity, but they couldn't move because of the reserve clause. And when things loosened up, the players started realizing, hey, I think I'm worth X number of dollars a year. My team doesn't think I'm worth X million dollars a year. I'm going to go find somebody who thinks I am worth X million dollars a year. And it's not a perfect parallel, I don't think, for the Soto situation because he's locked in for another couple of years at the entry-level sort of machinations that they impose on young players. But he clearly made his feelings known. He wanted out of Washington because he didn't think he was going to get what he thinks he's worth. So why shouldn't he go get as much as he can out of it? And that imposes some requirements on Washington to either match it or do the best they can with his value as a trade piece. Right. And he did not, he did not choose to be employed in Washington, right? That's, I mean, we, that's an argument, you know, a, a discussion for a different day, there will always be a draft is, you know, if I wanted to, if I wanted to make peptides, I could choose where I did it. Well, I mean, uh, they have to want me, but I can, I can apply anywhere. You want to teach, you can apply anywhere. You've got other reasons for wanting to be in a particular area. That's neither here nor there. You have the choice. Baseball players are going where, you know, you know, on the clock and then they're at that place. That's their team. So I can see, I, I think there should be a, a means for them to get out of it if they don't want to be where they are. Uh, I just think that the, you know, again, repeating it, that the team should be able to make or should make a fair offer. And then it's up to the player. If he doesn't want to stay for whatever reasons, he doesn't like the coast, uh, the wife wants to live there, et cetera, whatever the reason, that's fine. And, uh, you know, so I, I think that Washington made a, the fans can't get on us too much, but Scott Boris is not going to accept this type offer. I thought so too, as soon as I heard it, I, my first thought was, What they tried to do was couch this in a way that made them look like they were being generous when in fact they weren't. The average annual value was quite a bit below some lesser players in Major League Baseball for sure. And, but it looked like a big number because it was such a long contract. And of course, inflation and stuff like that eats into a long contract. But one of the things you wrote about in regard to the, how this uh, trade deadline frenzy went along is you said that the unwillingness of major league teams to trade within their division doesn't stand up to a logical analysis. What did you mean? Now, first, I don't know that major league teams think that. This came from a piece that I've been writing, the uh, Todd Stakes, where I watch ball games and I react and then I I do some box score stuff. But I, I you know, flipping around. And I'm hearing that narrative that, you know, this trade won't happen within, you know, Soto won't go to the Mets or I think they may have, they may have once felt that way. Things, things have to start somewhere. So it's more of a reaction that to me, it's lazy. It's just, you know, it's late. It's, it's lazy to say that because I don't think that it's true because it shouldn't be true. We'll use Soto as an example of the Mets. It, I'm not I'm you know, specifically saying this, but this is a good illustration to cover the entire point. But if Washington, if the Mets were offering the best prospects, why not, and I'm not saying they were, but if they were offering the best prospects, the best package, why not weaken a team within your division while yourself are getting better? You're not going to lose to them next year. It's not, you're the idea being you're going to need to compete with them in three, four, five years. You're hurting their, you're hurting their future. Why not do that? And and get the get the prospect package because if you're gonna if Washington or if if a team is willing to pay five hundred million for Soto and he doesn't take it, 
they're going to spend it on somebody else. There's going to be somebody else playing for that team. So why not you be the team that reaps the benefits of the best prospect package? Now, clearly it wasn't. the uh, went elsewhere. But the point, I don't understand the whole notion about uh, not trading within your division. Now, again, I don't know the major, clubs, major league clubs are doing it. And I haven't even had the time yet to look at the deals to see how many were in division. I've been so myopically focused on getting my spreadsheets and ESPN spreadsheets up to date as far as movement and, and, and tracking all the players go, which I'm finally done. Um, my uh, name dropping here, our, our friend Tristan Cockroft was on vacation this week. So guess who got to keep up the, uh, the forecaster and, and, and make all the moves and the behind the scenes. So uh, it was a double duty for, for doing that stuff this week. But anyway, um, and in fantasy, I mean, we've talked about this, trading with a first-place team, trading with a team you're trying to catch. If you feel you are gaining more points and you are taking away points from the teams you're trying to catch, you know, who cares if they're in front of you? I was wondering if there, if we were going to get to the the fantasy analog of the idea whether you can't trade within your division. And I understand your logic, and it kind of brings up a problem that people have in keeper leagues where there's trades yeah. of prospects and packages of prospects for, you know, last year of a contract type guys that a, that a contender really wants on their roster for the stretch. And I understand all that. The problem that John Benson correctly, I think, identified years ago in the argument over dump trading is you're running two races on one track and the team that wants the prospects is playing for some time down the road. And the team that wants Juan Soto or whoever the Mike Trout or the contract year ender is getting that guy wants him for right now and, and damn the consequences later on. And I think both of those things can simultaneously be true. The problem is that in fantasy baseball, it's not set up quite the same way and you don't have quite the same incentives as you do in, uh, in real baseball, as far as selling right. tickets and all of those kinds of things, which is a, certainly an aspect of, and getting TV contracts and sources of revenue, the players generate revenue in that way. So I come back to the idea that I understand that the Mets are giving up just as much as they're getting more or less. If you assume that both sides are reasonably competent, then the Mets are giving up as much value as they're getting if they trade for Juan Soto, or even you could say San Diego. San Diego gets Bell and Soto, and uh, and they give up a, a pretty good package of, of young players and prospects and what have you. And on the surface, it looks like San Diego got much the better of the deal. But if you look five years down the road, maybe not. If all those prospects pan out, probably San Diego's a net loser on the deal. And so... I don't think it matters so much that you're doing it within your division or not, because the idea of it is that both teams get their value. They just get it over different time frames. Right. But the, you know, with the underlying factor that within a division, you don't want to get beat by the players you traded. To me, that's narrative. And uh, Jeff Erickson pointed out when we were on the radio a couple of weeks ago that that's it's still an issue, but it's less of an issue because next season teams aren't playing themselves division rate uh, foes 19 times anymore. I don't, is it 14? I remember the exact number, but there's a more balanced schedule, right? You still don't want to get beat by a player that you traded. Well, that to me, that's, that's, that's wimpy. If you made yourself better, you made yourself better. If you got beat by that players, cause you didn't make yourself as good as you thought you did. Or you made them better this year and next you made yourself better than right, them right. three, four, five years down the road. 
Just as a general thing, Todd, and this just popped into my head, as baseball expands its playoffs, and the argument from a lot of fans is it it devalues the regular season because more and more teams find their way into the playoffs, so it's not as important for them. Really, I know there are some advantages to winning your division. You get a bye in the first round and so forth, much like the NFL, much like the NBA. But as the regular season gets less and less important, is that going to affect how players are valued for fantasy purposes and how they're able to produce for fantasy purposes? I don't think so because they're playing for their contract. I mean, they're they're playing for their they get you get paid for the regular season. You don't well, a couple of players get paid for the playoffs, but you generally you get paid for the regular season. Whether it mat whether as far as the if if the if a certain player gets more rest or isn't focused as much, I I don't I don't know, but I don't I don't think that's anything we can quantify anyway. Um, as, as some I to me the the playoffs are already I. I, I enjoy the 162 game season a lot more than the than the one month playoff run. All right, you won the World Series when when the teams I root for wins. Okay, I'm happy, but I just I just love watching baseball. So give me, you know, give me day games, you know, three days a week, all, and not even including weekends, f- five days a week, uh, like we're getting now. Give me give me what we're getting now, 162 game or 180 games days days over the summer. I'll watch the playoffs, but I don't I don't go into it thinking, well, this is the best team and et cetera. To me, it's just another another set of baseball games to watch with maybe a little bit more on the line. Um, so yeah, it does it dilute the playoffs? Probably, but I come back with, I don't really care. I was just thinking about it from the point you mentioned that it's going to be more and more important for these teams as more and more of them find their way into the playoffs, that they are prepared physically, especially, but yep, maybe yep. to a lesser extent mentally. And that's going to mean instead of Juan Soto playing 155 games, maybe he plays 135 because they're, especially as they get comfortable with the idea that they're in the playoff tournament, then they start thinking, well, the last thing we want to do is lose this guy to a strained hammy five days from the end. So let's just play him three or four times a week instead of five or seven times a week. And I think that has a potential to really upset valuations, especially if major league teams, one to the other, do it differently. Some of them go, you know, hell bent for leather the whole way, and other ones are way more analytical about it. And they say, well, you know, we've got Shane McClanahan, we're getting ready to go into the playoffs, we know we're in, assuming that they do at some point, then we're just going to rest him, or we're only going to pitch him every seven days instead of every five, or do some kind of shenanigan, because they're way more worried now about getting into the tournament and doing well in the tournament than they are about just winning another, you know, Monday night game in Kansas City. Right, sorry, we know the Dodgers are going to win the win, win it, so they're, example, play, yeah. Yeah, so they're not going to play Trey Turner 158 games, um, so I'm going to go into the season, give him 150, and that's going to drop him from the top two or three spots to seven or eight, and I'm not going to draft him because of that. Well, then, you know, Clayton Kershaw gets hurt or something like that happens, and, and suddenly they're in a, a dogfight with the Padres or the Giants, and, and Tinder ends up playing 160 games. So is it one of those things, is it is it discussion fodder that makes you sound smart, or is it actually something that's actionable? I don't know. I, it's the same to me. You know, it's the same as the schedule and the same as how much your NL pitchers going to be hurt with the DH. And there, you can you can quantify these things, but sometimes so you you work into the edges, it gets lost in the variance anyway. So yeah, that's an interesting. You know, will will certain players not play? You know, Manny Machado. You know, he, he's already shown this year playing hurt a few times. 
uh, you know, is he good for 158 games with the Padres probably making the playoffs in the future years? You know, maybe not. Um, so yeah, that's going to be interesting, uh, when we go to do the playing time. And to me, what it does, and I mean, I've been saying this a lot in podcasts on the radio, what it does is, you know, it's not good for my brand to say it to takes away from projection projections, but you have to realize what you can't be married to that projection. You have to look at the numbers and all it's incorporated and realize that there's different outcomes here and there. And you, when you draft and you're looking at a Trey Turner, you're looking at a Mookie Betts, that's part of the process. Well, he may not play a, as much, but am I? are you going to drop him below someone who's going to play a lot when you're, you know, you're drafting a lesser player because of it? So to me, it puts more attention on, on your drafting and drafting skills and drafting acumen and a little bit less on that static representation of a wide range of outcomes. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Todd Zola from Masters Ball and Rotowire, ESPN, Sirius XM podcasts all over the place. And Todd, recently in your Z Files column at Rotowire, you took a look at how the offenses have been performing through the uh, roughly through the All Star break, I guess. And I'm just curious, what did you find out as far as runs, homers, strikeouts, all that kind of stuff? How do we compare with the last few years? What the main thing that we found is. You can usually map out a season based upon what happens early. The, the levels are different, but the, the trends are usually the same. The trends this year are all over the place. So you, you can't run, you know, as it gets warmer, runs, scoring goes up. Well, scoring did not go up. Matter of fact, it went down as the weather got warmer. But home runs stayed the same they usually go up a little bit but they didn't go down with the scoring it got to a point where it looked like batters are making an adjustment to the to the ball that sprouts parachutes and making better contact and putting it in play but that ended strikeouts are back up again um babip is what's controlling the runs and we you know we know that's somewhat variable so it's it's what basically finding is it's not as predictable, you know, all right, I'm going to stream and I'm going to stream in April, part of May, and then again in September. You can stream just as well and by saying being the basis of the, the league ERA is highest in July and August and et cetera. I, I think you could stream just as well in May as you could have in July. I think the ERAs are pretty close. So that's that's part of it. And, I mean, what the what the reasons are, it depends on what your agenda is. There's a there's a group that say it's the humidor. There's a group that say it's the ball. There's a group that say it's the sticky stuff. There's a group that say it's the shift. Well, you know what? As you know, it's, it's all of them. It is. And one of the aspects of it that you focused on was the use of the humidor, which was presented by Major League Baseball as a way to even out these things and make uh, make everybody kind of on a similar scale across the game. And of course, subsequently, there was some analysis that suggested they were using the humidors incorrectly, which might have messed up those kinds of plans. But you took a look in the column specifically at what might be going on because of the introduction of humidors across the game. What did you find out? The, any data in such a short sample, I mean, it, it, the data is the data, but there's other factors involved within that you can't just specifically say it's because of the humidor. I mean, you mentioned, I already mentioned kind of all these other 
all these other factors. Um, they, you know, comparing parks that had the humidor last year and then Arizona and Colorado, which had had it for several years, to the parks that are having it for the first time and kind of throwing Toronto out because they had several home parks last year. So they really can't be part of the part of the analysis is that the 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 humidor seems to be the the, the global the, the aggregate effect is the humidor seems to be lessening the flight of the baseball. I mean, some places it's more, some places it's less. But when you take the average, it's it's reducing the flight of the baseball. But if you take the humidor out of the equation. The ball itself is 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 just is not traveling as far, so the, the additive effect of the ball. So now you can't find this out in even one year. Which which venue is the humidor making go further? Which venue is the humidor dampening the flight of the baseball? We're gonna know. We're gonna find that out after one year. But whether it's predictable or not, we don't know that yet. You noted that the indoor parks uh, seem to be less subject to variability than the outdoor ones for obvious reasons. There's climate control indoors and they can maintain the temperature and I'm assuming they can maintain the humidity at a fairly regular time. Uh, something that jumped out at me though, Toronto is not part of the, uh, part of the estimate and uh, I wonder why not. Well, that's because comparing it to last season, they, we they, they didn't play there. In, they didn't play. They had too many home park. Had too many home parks, so really can't really can't compare it. And I believe they were one of the venues, Rogers Center, that was supposed. Maybe I don't want to say supposed to. I believe they had a humidor last year. I mean, but we only got to see it for a small amount of time. So it just they didn't. It didn't make sense for Toronto to be in the in the uh, in the. Uh, in the the, the investigation. Now I, I need to look into this. You probably know, is the roof always closed in Toronto? I mean, and, and no, yeah, it, I, I didn't think so because, you know, playing DFS, that was, you, you kind of want to check because it, it matters. And that, that changes things too, because it's almost always closed in Arlington. It's almost always closed. And well, it pretty much is all, all, always closed in Arizona. So these play, even though there's a, retractable roof it's essentially a dome a dome a dome park um but i thought toronto was one of those where especially early you know early in the year when it's cold and late in the year when it's cold uh colder uh, it, it might be closed but during the summertime they leave it open yeah that's pretty much it and even uh, even in the colder parts of the season if it's sunny out they'll usually leave it open because it's a much more pleasant place to watch a game when the sun is shining right. in than when right. you're operating under artificial light and it has that sort of kingdom effect where it's just a big kind of cement thing over your head. <laughs> it it doesn't bring you to mind of Wrigley Field and the birds singing in the background and the car horns honking and whatever else goes on in uh, Wrigley Field, but it's a much more pleasant environment to watch a game when the roof is open than it's closed. And they know that uh, and they want to maximize that as far as they can. Now you you said in the article that one of the impetuses for the study was the notion that the humidor really has transformed Bush Stadium. Maybe Maybe more than the other stadiums, and you were curious about that when you looked into it. What were you able to ascertain? That was kind of the narrative. Paul Goldschmidt and and, and a few other players. I, I redid the numbers up to last night, and Bush Stadium is playing as a positive home run park, whereas it's been one of the it, it has dampened home runs in the past. Now 
the caveat is no park park factors are noisy within this four month frame, and I we, I can't say that it's a humidor, and I've done I because I I do I do. Stability stability studies. I'm not sure that's the right word, but using standard deviations, I look at parks in short and short uh, samples, and I've seen the same variance in Bush Stadium. I've seen it in other places, and a lot of this has to do with uh, daily day DFS play and even just daily lineups. Trying to figure out what you know, we all, you know, we're going to use this pitcher against this offense because this offense strikes out this percent against this team. But one thing we don't know, we don't know is, is what sample do we need to be able to say that definitively that their strikeout rate is actionable. And part of that is the part, you know, the park factor fits into that. This park is playing a certain way. Um, You know, that, that changes the matchup, but I don't know that the park is playing differently. I just think that the you know over the, that course of time the variance is such that it appears to be playing differently. Now you introduced the humidors this year, and you do have a place where the park could be playing differently. Uh, you know, Bush Stadium. You would think, uh, you know, it, it, it's one of you know what what has to happen is the balls in order for the Bush Stadium to be increasing the distance, the balls have to be kind of drying out. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. So you'd have to, I mean, St. Louis can get humid. You know, we know that. So the balls previously had to have been stored like in an open area, right? Not like in an air conditioned room. That's part of the thing too, is we're trying to figure out which of these parks, how it's going to work. And all right, well, this is a humid environment. This is a cold environment. We don't know where they were, you know, someplace in a humid place, maybe the storage is an air conditioned room. And then, you know, we, we, or maybe half of the balls were air conditioned and half the balls were, you know, in a warehouse somewhere because yeah. of the room. we don't know. That's right. You know, I mean, we're trying to make these assumptions. Um, so, uh, you know, so yeah, you know, the narrative would be the sign, you know, trying to figure it out. The balls restored in a humid area and by putting them into the humidor, it's removing some of the, the, the moisture. Whereas in Colorado, it's adding it. You know, the humidors could have different effects. If that is that what's happening, maybe I don't know, yeah. maybe so. But that that's what has to be happening. So now, I mean, you know, the investigative reporter has to knock on the door of St. Louis groundskeeper and say, "Where were the balls stored?" Pre, you know, Eno has to. We need Eno to get out there and to you know get Athletic to uh, pay for him to go to St. Louis and and ask the head groundskeeper where were they stored previously. Um, so you know, that's what I'll I'll get I'll get on that. I'll, I'll get Eno to to do that. Uh, but anyway, so. Um, I don't know, and and even if it, it to me, that's just such a huge. I mean, it, it, the change is so much bigger that if this were happening, you'd see huge changes elsewhere. So I think that there could be something to it, but I also think we're just seeing variants, and who knows? In the next two months, we may we may we may see some give back, and instead of saying um, that that Bush Stadium is playing whatever it is, a hundred and 108 or whatever, I forget the exact number. Maybe it drops to 97 or something like that. And and it's not quite as drastic as we thought. Something else that comes to mind also is that we know that the humidor affects the, the pro, uh, power productivity and the batted ball speed productivity because it has some kind of effect on the amount of moisture in the ball. But at the same time, 
as far as we know, Major League Baseball may be adjusting the ball as we go along. And so, you know, Major League Baseball giveth and Major League Baseball's humidors taketh away or vice versa. It seems like for a while anyway, until things maybe get stable, and I don't know how you're going to know when they do, but until they do, it's really kind of, uh, you're putting a blindfold on and then, and then shooting when you're trying to hit a target as to trying to explain what exactly is going on here, because there are so many variables and most of them are out of sight. Exactly. And, you know, yeah, I get paid to do it. Ray gets paid to do it. Derek Hardy, you know, does it, but we're, we're, we're putting our, our best guesses and then putting it into some kind of system to come out with a number. But again, kind of alluded to it earlier, you still, when you're drafting, you can't, you have to realize there's a whole lot of noise behind that. And good baseball players usually play good and bad baseball players don't. And it's still a matter of roster construction in terms of fantasy. But, you know, you you go back and say, well, Martin Perez is benefiting more than other pitchers because his main issue was home runs, right? I mean, he's always... And he's improved in other areas, but is that that could be confidence too? Not giving up the home run gives you confidence to change your pitch mix, pitch mix, and uh, even even your timing and distribution. So it, it's you know it's the the kind of these factors kind of domino. But yeah, there's going to be other pitchers who's if they're giving up fewer in you know Baltimore, it's not even the ball, the humidor, just the confidence of being able to let. I'm losing Hayes is in left field. Let Austin Hayes catch those balls. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about it now with Trey Mancini. I wish I had, if I have a buck for every time he turns to a teammate and says, that would have been an out in Baltimore, I'd be a rich man for the next two months. Yeah. And last year it would have been a home run in Baltimore. So that's another yeah. change. And you have to kind of build that into your analysis, but only insofar as Baltimore is concerned. And of course, every year, usually we see some kind of change in the park dimensions here or there. It's not usually as drastic as shoving the left field fence back 30 feet and raising it by 10. But nonetheless, those differences do occur every year. And when I read your article, I started thinking, as difficult as your job is in building projections, and you mentioned Ray and Derek and the other people who do these projections, gosh almighty, it seems like you're always juggling 12 burning torches and now... Basically, uh, Major League Baseball has handed you a gas can and said, here, throw this around in there while you're at it. I mean, I'm not going to say from um, 2014 to 2016, there was nothing to think about. But, I mean, you know, know, 2019, we've got the happy fun ball. 2020, the truncated season. Last year, we we had the the sticky stuff in, in and then out and the two different balls. And you'd like to reduce the number of variables. But we're not. We're not reducing the number of variables, and we try to neutralize all these variables, and we're making guesses. I mean, we had to make a guess as to the DH. We have to make a guess as to the schedule next year, and we're going to have not. We're probably going to have to make a guess as to the shift and what players and what pitchers benefit or suffer the most if the shift is legislated. That might be the biggest of them all. Who's to, who knows? If I wasn't paid to do it. I just use Ray's stuff and Jeff Erickson stuff and and Derek stuff. I average him out, or maybe I just get Ariel stuff because he averages it for me. But no, uh, you know, I I get paid, so I I'm gonna do it. You know, I'm gonna think I'm doing it the best, and everybody's gonna think they're doing it the best. But you know, what we're doing is the best we know how. 
and maybe the added variability in a weird way kind of evens out the fantasy baseball landscape competitively because if the projections were really perfect but they cost money, then the guy in the fantasy <laughs> league who's willing to spend the money on the projections versus the guy who just uses some version of Marcel or one of the free ones is at a disadvantage. But the more variability that comes in, the less likely it is that one projection system is going to be significantly better than any of the others. Yes and no. Because I, I, I do, do you, bottom line, do you want the most accurate, if it exists, projection system? Sure. But sure. I still think it's the better drafter with a lousier projections could beat a terrible drafter with the best. I think that's right. Right. It, it, you know, I mean, I, I make this joke 15, you know, 15 team league, 15 people can walk in with my projections. One's going to think I'm a genius. One's going to think I'm an idiot. And the other 13 are going to be somewhere in between. You want the best basis as you can, but there's so many more factors and I'm not the best drafter. I mean, I, my, my track record has shown it. There's going to be some reason why that, I, I don't win as many leagues as I do, air quote, knowing what I do. I think people are better drafters than I am. And I, you know, I'm getting getting up there and I still think I have enough years to do this that I gotta continue to strive to get better drafting. Yeah, I'm I feel like I draft pretty well where my weakness is, and this is something else that is maybe starting to be more recognized than it used to be, is in-season management seems to be becoming more and more important yep. because of yep. injuries and player manipulation by the teams and yep. platooning yep. and all of these kind of things. So I think where I have to get better, and a lot of people are going to want to get better, is in uh, in-season management because you can draft a team and you look at the projections from three or four sources and you think, look at me, I'm first in two of them, I'm second in another one, and I'm a third in the last one. And then the season plays out and you finish ninth, you know, and the reason was because you got out maneuvered during the season by other guys who maybe didn't draft as well, but the draft is only the start of the process, not the end of it. And uh, it behooves all of us to keep that in mind and really focus on that aspect of it as well. I agree a thousand percent. Part of it is the number of leagues, but you know, that aside, um, you know, I'll talk specifically about the NFBC uh, platform. They don't, and I like the fact, I like this about the NFBC. They don't have the stats. And I don't, I'm not, I don't use the stats to make my decisions. I use it for, to inform playing time, but they don't, they just have the schedule. So you, you need to, you know, go offline to see, you know, is, is this marginal player playing more than this marginal player? I'm going to, I need to, I, I need to basically to, to lift my leagues from the NFBC site, put into Excel and have Excel tell me, you know, write the coding, you know, to then put the stats in. And I think that, I don't know that other other people do that. I'll bet some do. I do. <laughs> uh, I think that would help me, especially in the draft champions formats where you're looking at 40 players and you just, you know, you might, I, I took, I don't know. I took a guy out with two games from, Monday to Thursday, and I just missed putting him back in because I, Friday, you know, yeah. on Friday, I'm just kind of a little bit, I know, you know, is it lazy? Probably, but I just, I forgot that I took Xander Bogarts out because the Red Sox only had two games and didn't put him back in for a series at home and, you know, lost. Well, I'm not losing home runs from Bogarts this year, um, but no. anyway, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, don't I, know have, <laughs> I have Xander Bogarts uh, in that regard as well and kind of, 
You, you don't yeah. look at it and go, oh, I hope I didn't miss any Xander Bogarts home runs. Cause yeah, I don't know why. I, I'm not even sure why I use Bogarts. But anyway, so yeah, I, mean, well. I, was trying to, I was trying to think of a, uh, a, a guy that you don't start all the time and a guy that, you know, you know that, oh, I forgot to put him back in. No big deal. Right. I don't know why I came with Bogarts. He should be someone to start all the time. I did that with Bogarts is maybe why I thought about it. I think I need to figure out a way to put in a spreadsheet and, and help me make better roster decisions. You take a look at the standings. If you're five or six RBI or behind a player, that's not drafting. That's that's roster management. That, that's not making a couple moves you should have made in this season. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And talking of streaming, you had another t- uh, Z files where you were talking about uh, streaming pitchers, especially those marginal type of pitchers that are really the most affected by streaming decisions. Of course, you're going to start Max Scherzer every game. You're going to start <laughs> McClanahan every game. That's a no-brainer. But again, we get back to roster management, and now we're not in the realm of remembering to do it. We're in the realm of deciding what are the odds that starting this pitcher is going to be a beneficial thing for me rather than uh, something bad. And I've, I've tried to do a little more streaming this year, even in the uh, Tout American League, which is a, a single league format. I think it's important there too, because there's some, the, you're naturally going to have more poor pitchers because there's just fewer pitchers in the pool to, to pick from. But one of those American League pitchers who gets streamed a lot is Marco Gonzalez, and you said you were looking at him and you were reconsidering some of the assumptions you made when you were making that Marco Gonzalez sit or play decision. HQ as a tool, a matchup tool, it, it does pretty well. I'm sure part of the algorithm is the the team's, the opposition strikeout rate and WOBA and all those sort of things. And um, you, you guys, I'm sure, have picked out uh, a time frame over which to look. I want to find I, I it's not an HQ. I don't have one. I don't know. I haven't I've yet to find a piece that says this is the time frame to use for strikeout rates against left-handed pitchers. I don't know that it exists. And that was what this piece was all about is that I make a I you know I say you you know use Marco Gonzalez cuz such and such team strikes out at a 27% clip against lefties and it's going to improve. But how how reliable, how predictive is that 27%, especially against lefties? Because the sample is already small. And by the time you get to a certain point, players have been hurt. Players have been traded. I mean, all these percentages that we're looking at after the trade deadline, they're they're changed. They're different because lineups are different. So can you really look back and I'm going to stream this guy uh, because for the past 30 days, they've struck out this percentage against saying, you know, this handedness of a pitcher. Well, it's a different team. So I don't know that it even exists, but yet I do it. HQ does it. ESPN does it. We all have a time frame that we use as our basis. So all I, you know, I try to do a quick study. And what I learned in the study was I don't think that there is an actual answer. The answer is there's no answer. The answer is you have to know the lineup of that day and calculate it on a daily basis, which is, I'm sure, what Vegas does, which is, I'm sure, what DFS players do. But then you you, know, you can't tell who to stream for the week because when we, we don't know. Baseball HQ's park factors include a strikeout number. But another thing that I've tried to do over time is, you know, you look at 
the individual pitcher versus each individual hitter on the other team and try to figure out how likely is that going to be to work out. And, and unfortunately, it's a very noisy stat because obviously if you're looking at Marco Gonzalez versus uh, maybe Albert Pujols would be a bad example because he used to play a lot, but <laughs> these days, not so much, right? And, and you're going to see a small sample of a handful of plate appearances and you say, oh, look, Albert Pujols has been really crushing Marco Gonzalez. Ergo, I don't want to start Marco Gonzalez in a game where Pujols is playing. But it's such a small sample and so noisy that you might think you're gaining something by summing up all of the all of the individual hitters into a kind of a lineup situation. Maybe that would work. I don't know. But uh, what were the assumptions that you were making that you think maybe are working as far as making streaming decisions? When I'm talking about daily lineup, I'm not even talking about versus that pitcher. I'm just talking about in general because I don't I don't believe in the in the in the individual better versus pitchers. I'd still use matchup numbers I just have less confidence with them Gonzalez is a good example because he's a non-dominant lefty so he needs kind of needs the matchup there and he needs a team that strikes out to raise his strikeouts and similarly with a a pitcher that gives up homers needs a team that doesn't hit homers so I I use these the the factors say start him the HQ matchup tool says start Marco Gonzalez just have to understand that there's that there's a lot of room for up and down in there. And would it be better to use a reliever or to use maybe a, a less risky player who maybe is, doesn't have the same grade? So we, we have to use these numbers. I just think our confidence level in them has to be lower. And therefore, it comes down to more of a touch and feel, you know, management decision. We want to turn everything into a number and play the highest number. I don't think the good players do that. Well, I tried it this year. Uh, James Caprelli in, in Oakland was my pitcher to stream or not to stream in my American League team. And I ran him in and out of there based on my best ability to figure out what kind of team he was playing against, how well do they hit right-handers, blah, 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 and and sitting him down against sometimes just good teams. You know, I never let him pitch right. against Houston, for instance, just on general principles. And I just looked it up, and uh, on my roster, he's had a 426 ERA. For the, for the season, he's had a 432. And I only pitched him about half his starts, so I gained .06 of an ERA point over however many innings it was that I had him. I did gain a little bit in whip. He's a 128 um, whip so far this year, and I got him down to about 116, which is not nothing, but again, the relatively small number of innings means the impact on my entire performance in the pitching staff has been really meager, I, I would have to guess. A couple of different things to that. If you gain that marginal edge on five pitchers it's now a little bit rel- it's more relevant True. but i think more importantly you're not using caprillion who did you use instead if you use the reliever who helped your ratios you have to kind of compare that to what caprillion would have done yeah, I definitely benefited because I was running yeah. Lima style relievers out there you know get yeah, an inning yeah. here and an inning there yeah yeah, and, and you know, in a in an AL league, like you say, you just have less chances to make these decisions, especially in Tout Wars, where there's only four reserves. And you're probably keeping a hitter or two or maybe a minor leaguer just because we're able to replace injured players. So you want to have a hitter or two there in case one of your guys gets hurt midweek. Yeah. And you know, so you multiple position eligibility, two swingmen, et cetera, uh, two utilities, I should say. 
but yeah, I mean, you just have less of a chance to stream in in, in tout war streaming hit, or, you know, in hitters or pitchers. But yeah, in a mixed league, these decisions are more prevalent, and you also have the reserve or sorry, your free agent list as an added reserve, which is obviously more extended. As Jeff Zimmerman will say and has written, it's not nearly as plush as some of us said. Ah, just stream. Well, that's easy to say. Have you seen what's out there to stream? Uh, you know, th- th- that factors in there as well. And finally, Todd, uh, you had a column, a Z Files column, where you looked at first half performances. And one of the notes that jumped out at me was when you said Michael Harris might be among the most valuable hitters in the entire game if he'd begun the year in the majors. How good is Michael Harris? And where does he go next year if he's doing this well this year? Yeah, well, it was more of a observation than analysis. I just, you know, if you prorated his numbers, he would have top, not 20 outfielder, but top 20 hitter. And all right, is he going to, can you do that? No, he, you know, I think he's fallen off a bit, but I just, it was more of a, wow, I didn't realize how good he was. And you know how we, you, you, you've written enough articles in your time where people love lists. And lists give you a great jumping off point to talk about players, right? I mean, it's kind of one of those tricks of the trade, if you will. Readers love lists. They'll read pieces with lists, but I need something to talk about. So I'll find people on that list to talk about. That's what came out about Harris. Um, Again, staying in my lane, I was not all that familiar with Harris as a minor leaguer. And reading about him, neither neither were some prospectors, which is kind of the, you know, you're talking about if we knew all the projections, if we knew which prospects were going to pop and which weren't, it wouldn't be as much fun either. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, Joe Odell versus Michael Harris or something. <laughs> now, but yeah, so no, all it tells me and all I, the point I wanted to get across was, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's track Harris the rest of the season. Let's track his, his skills, not just the, not just the outcomes. We, we should know enough by now if we're listening to this podcast and following HQ that it's the skills we're more interested in than the outcomes. And, you know, then let's take a look at where Atlanta has for, for playing time. I think they want, I think they like a Michael Harris to, to roam center field and let Acuna play right just health reasons and et cetera. I know Acuna can play center, but I think they're a little happier if he can play some right field. Uh, And then we'll, we'll see. I mean, if you, all right, you prorate his stats and then ding him X percent, man, he, he runs. Yeah. Which is just, I think he's going to be a top 50, 60, 70 player probably. And that might be, that might, I, I, I'm not good at, that's why, that's why I like Excel. Cause they, you know, they, they, it helps me do these things. I, I mean, with those steals in there, he's going to be a top, I'm thinking what round would what, what you know if he's a top five rounder, that's a top seventy five player. I think I think he has the opportunity to finish in that range, assuming he plays. I don't know 85 percent of the time for the Braves next season. Well, Todd, interesting as always. I appreciate you taking the time to come and join us. Uh, remind our listeners quickly about uh, where they can keep up with you. Right, yeah. You mentioned the you mentioned the uh, the, the places and RotoWire. I'd like to quit. We kind of alluded to it a couple times. I'm doing a new column called Todd's Takes at RotoWire, where twice a week I'm giving some general observations and then running through the box course. I'm having a blast doing it. 
um, gotten some good feedback. So uh, if, you, if you're a subscriber, please check it out. If you're not, you can uh, get a free trial, rotowire.com slash try. I mentioned ESPN. I'm doing work for ESPN behind the scenes and uh, doing the forecaster for Tristan this week. Mentioned the radio. No more, no more fantasy channel until the off season. But every week we're on MLB Network Radio. Uh, an hour on Saturday. I can't tell you the time. It depends on what games are being played or broadcast. It's either one, four, or seven. Um, but I'm on for an hour on MLB Network Radio. And uh, thank you in, in HQ for continuing to send me an invite every couple of months. Well, it's our pleasure to have you, and uh, I know we'll ha- talk to you again before the season's up. Thanks a million, Todd. All right, PD. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and broadcasts at SiriusXM. Quick break here, then we're back with our HQ commentaries. I'm taking the week off from extra innings, so the frequent flyer is coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. One more Baseball HQ item I wanted to mention is the Eyes Have It podcast. In this edition, Brent Hershey and Chris Blessing break down a few of the trades that happened before Tuesday morning. And then they look at Phillies prospect Mick Abel, Reds prospect Connor Phillips, and Angels prospects Jeremiah Jackson and Jordan Adams. And of course, at the site, Chris ranks the prospects who moved at the deadline. That and all the other items I've mentioned are only a few of literally dozens of great resources you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. We have player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, injury analysis in the big hurt column, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential sergers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up. You get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our commentaries. Leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at Texas outfielder Bubba Thompson is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He's a sensational athlete with plus-plus speed, but remains very raw with crude swing mechanics, according to Baseball HQ's Rob Gordon and Jeremy Deloney. But wait, that scouting report was part of Baseball HQ's June 5th, 2017 MLB Draft Preview. Fast forward five years to 2022, and now 24-year-old Texas Rangers outfielder Leslie Bubba Thompson has just been called up to Arlington on August 4th to debut against the Chicago White Sox. In fact, the Dallas Morning News framed the Major League debuts of the former first-round picks Bubba Thompson and Cole Reagans as Welcome to Thursday, the dawn of a new era. Why is this significant? Because, according to Evan Grant, for the referencing MLB's StatCast, Thompson's time to first base on a successful bunt single in the seventh inning was 3.62 seconds, the fifth-fastest sprint to first in the majors this season. Stealing is what I want to do, Thompson was quoted as saying in a July 28th interview with MILB.com's Gerard Gilberto. 
Indeed, Thompson, with 49 steals in 2022, now holds the Round Rock Express's all-time single-season steals record, only three swipes shy of Rangers leader Bump Willis's 52 in 1978, and Thompson's not done yet. Big-time speed. Add in Thompson's 303 batting average with 13 home runs at AAA Round Rock in 2022, and Rangers fans and fantasy team managers have several reasons to be excited. Speed, power, and contact, definitely a good combination. However, be aware that Thompson's hyperinflated 385 batting average on balls in play at AAA in 2022 points to possibly serious regression at the major league level. That's why Bubba Thompson, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot. Nevertheless, Thompson appears to be landing in a good situation in Texas, a prime opportunity. Left field has been an offensive pit for the Rangers, according to Evan Grant, with 11 different players combining for the worst OPS of the majors at the position by more than 100 points. That probably spells playing time for Thompson. Plus, Texas, though 21 games out, currently leads the American League with 80 total steals as a team through 105 games, possibly signaling even more green lights in Arlington. Every time I lace my shoes up, I plan to show him what I can do, Thompson said in the same Dallas Morning News article. And what he can also do, besides steal bases, is hit for average and power. More importantly, Bubba Thompson may be able to significantly help your team as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 5th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 31 of the 2022 fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank our guest experts for this Friday full edition. Chris Blessing, the scouting analyst at BaseballHQ.com and the co-host of the Eyes Have It podcast. And Todd Zola from Rotowire, Masters Ball, ESPN and SiriusXM. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on those BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Google Pods, wherever you catch your pods pretty much, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring an expert interview with Doug Dennis, the bullpens columnist at BaseballHQ.com, as well as a special interview with Woody Govan, who won a spot on Baseball HQ Radio by being a good guy and supporting the charitable effort at the fantasy baseball Potapalooza Potathon a weekend or two ago. As I mentioned, I'll ask Woody about his fantasy experiences, how he manages his teams, his experience last year as a first-timer at First Pitch Arizona, and of course, how he came to be called Woody. 
Plus, all the usual great stuff, our National League and American League news analysis, our Baseball HQ commentaries, and Doug Dennis on next Friday's full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk with you again on Friday, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.